In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. indeed found no proscenium the voice of everything immersive i'm your host noah nelson and welcome to episode 420 of our ongoing exploration of the immersive cosmos this week it's the big best of show that's right we've got three segments with the review crew touching on picks from their year-end best of lists for 2023 We've got a whole bunch of folks coming through today, which is why it's three segments. Joining us on the show are going to be Edward Milchrist, Nicholas Fortuno, Blake Weil, Katrina Latt, Laura Hess, Patrick McLean, Martin Jimenez, Kevin Gossett, and Danielle Riha. Together, that covers just about a third of the No Pro Review crew, and they're each bringing just a few of their picks from this year's best experiences and best moments both roundups of which you can find on the NoPro site even as we speak. Before we get into it, though, and, and there's so much, it's a long one, so there's not going to be a bunch of rambling. But before we get into it, I want to thank our latest backer, Ethan Bach, for hopping back on board the NoPro Express as we come into the station for 2023. Remember, as of now, becoming a backer is the way to sign up for the newsletter and become a part of the NoPro Discord, which breaks interesting ticket drops like the upcoming The Traders Experience in Los Angeles before we have a chance to put it up on any of the sites. Head over to patreon.com slash and help us reach our end of year goal of 450 backers, which we are just 11 members away from. We are so close, y'all. As always, big thanks to our sustaining backers, Samuel Mustry, Chris Woolman, Samantha Davison, Eric Shamlin, Elaine, Daryl, John Boulette, Cameo Wood, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentis, Kurt Collins, Ryan, David Bassick, Richard Ayers, Lonnie Hanson, Leckard LeCool, the Ministry of Peculiarities, and Jan Budman. We're also on the lookout for community partners who are up for working out special deals for our backers. Hit me up at noah at noprosinium.com for details. I'll be back at, after all the segments, just for a couple of moments, uh, and then next week, we're doing our journalist roundtable. Uh, Going to have a bunch of folks on for that. Um, we're, 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 the podcast keeps on going. We will be putting the site and the newsletter to bed for a little bit, just for about a week, but the podcast rolls on. Why? Because that's just the way it's going to be this year. All right, let's go. <laughs> Uh, joining us this time, it's the East Coast crew. We've got Ed, recently transferred to Philly, Nicholas up in New York, and Blake still. Uh, Blake, you're you're still in Philly. Are you hanging out in Maryland right now? Where are you? You're always on the go. <laughs> I am just back from a weekend in New York uh, where my immersive show got canceled, sadly, and I am still in Philly. Okay, there we go. Uh, with that all uh, in mind, uh, we're going to run through the guys, l- both uh, some of their 
picks from their best of, of which is on the website right now as we're talking and also from their uh, best moments which should also be on the website while you're listening to this uh we start with something that hit both ed and blake's list and that would be order of the golden scribe ed why don't you tell us what this show was Thanks, Noah. Well, yeah, just to jump in, I mean, we've had such an amazing year of Immersive in New York City. Truly, there's been so much uh, great stuff. We had Immersive Gatsby, a great big uh, party in the 1920s. We had Here Lies Love, the big Broadway transfer, all of this big budget stuff, the huge immersive things uh, to varying levels of success. Uh, personally, I loved them both. I thought they were great. But for me, the show that really stole my heart was a much smaller scale show called The Order of the Golden Scribe, uh, invited to a tea party. It happens to be that the tea party is also the initiation ceremony for a cult. I mean, the classic uh, combo there, tea, scones, and cult. Uh, But the combo there was fantastic because the whole show was so lighthearted, so beautiful, and so sweet, both literally and uh, tastefully, I suppose. It was a sweet show. Sandwiches, scones, teas were served. But the whole show is a mix between escape room puzzle design, uh, interaction, comedic timing. It's kind of a dinner show but it's in the afternoon it's lighthearted. it's family friendly and it was truly delightful uh, it took place in the cell theater and but this for me was a perfect show of something which could pop up anywhere anytime and would hit every single demographic it's family friendly uh it's appropriate for all ages it's funny it, you the, whatever you put in you're gonna get out the actors were fantastic at delivering lines back to you uh but yeah like i say a fantastic piece um and just humor wit and charm was the uh was the order for the day uh, you say anywhere and any time but it does seem to be limited to tea time i would think that'd be the most appropriate time for well you're for talking a- to a british man <laughs> tea time is any time okay uh, no, it, it is a perfect afternoon tea perhaps <laughs> yes uh blake uh what what had you putting this one on your list so there's this moment that I'm sure that you are like familiar with going to any immersive things yourself where you at the start of the show spy a incredibly shy first timer in line. Uh, in this case, it was maybe like a 14 year old kid out with his family uh, that originally seemed dragged to this show. And within, I want to say 15 minutes of interaction he was acting as if he was a seasoned attendee of immersive theater productions. Mm. This was a show that was so good at gently bringing everyone in on the fun at having something for anyone at any skill level of interaction, of puzzle uh, skill, of theatrical skill, something for everyone to do. And a lot of nice little breaks for tea and sandwiches between structurally i don't think anything this year had a better rhythm to it um the fact that everyone had at least one moment that was your shining star moment where you got to be the main character you had opportunities to support all your friends you came with when it was their moment to do that Mm. and not gonna lie the food was delicious and having a little bit of a tangible reward to each puzzle really added to a feeling of progress, a feeling of culmination to all of your efforts, even if that culmination was just, you know, the next round of sweets. So for those reasons, I think it's definitely my pick for like an 
a good-for-everyone show. This was the family winner of the year, by far. Do you think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from like the, the, the structure of it or, or does this feel like something that's singular to the people who made it? Ed, Ed's got to take on that. Yes. So the clever thing that they did here is that you sit with your table and your table is only four people. Uh, but immediately when you sit down, one of the seats had a secret message, which said, run upstairs, someone who wants to see you. And you meet somebody else, another actor who is, wants to sabotage and get in. And is I think they, they were the press trying to work out what's going on with the cult. So immediately one person is getting a little bit of a nugget, something to give back to the table when they return. But whilst you're gone, the rest of the table are interacting with the cult people and it's all all working so well. But it's so smart because you are effectively in a team of four. But as your table progresses, you see that other tables are progressing as well. And so you sneak a peek of what somebody else is doing. And suddenly somebody is standing up and looking for a book somewhere in the room. And suddenly you're inspired when it's your turn to go and do that. I think Blake hit it on the head there perfectly where everybody had a moment to shine uh, everybody had those aha moments where look at me oh i found the thing it i have this moment and it was so exciting to see that and from a relatively new company but with excellent puzzle design it was all clever it was all seamless so there was no moment where i felt that was cheap or something i'd seen before it just flowed so nicely Nicholas, I think you had something to add. Yeah, I, I saw it too. It didn't make my favorite list, but I, I liked it. And I think the thing that stood out to me as a, a sort of second lesson is that it's a, a you know, as I suggested, it's a lower budget show, but where they concentrated their energy was on, you know, you do two things in the show, as Blake suggested, you solve puzzles and you you have tea and eat. And they concentrated very, very nicely on making those assets very good. So the mm. puzzles were very good. And then the tea was a tea. It was a tea with with good treats with good teas and so you felt like if you read the card when you walked in and then you got what you got for the ticket it felt very good even though you could imagine a show that would blow out a lot of the other production features they were very smart about blowing out the features that were critical to the show and it made the show hold together really nicely even as a small show like it didn't fe- you didn't feel like you were in something DIY when you were in it one I, of the I love that note Blake One of the other notes I think we can take from it, so long as we're talking budget on a smaller show, is the elegance with which the set was designed. It started with this very, you know, cultish, sparse white space with just a few hints of antiques and the occasional imagery of the cult. But as the evening progressed and more and more puzzles were solved, that introduced further color and chaos into the room, giving a really nice visual progression to the narrative. But none of this really cost next to anything. It was just clean whitewashed with white tablecloths and white paintings on the walls, handful of antiques, and then what happened happened as bits and bobs and props got introduced. Having a strong central design aesthetic that was seemingly tailored to fit scope budget and space really paid out dividends fantastic that that sounds like there's just smart choices being made up and down the line and we love to hear that nicholas we're moving on to part of your list for the year and that would be uh Maybe a slightly awkward moment here in, in a second but uh that would be uh, the uh, the incomplete collection Happy yeah, so, awkward, by the way, everybody. <laughs> yeah, happy awkward. A, a, a member of Incomplete Collection is with us as we speak. <laughs> um, Are they in the uh, room now? Nothing. <laughs> yeah, so the Incomplete Collection is uh, is a is a small immersive show that takes place in something that that's in a gallery. It's in an actual gallery space in Queens, but it is made up to be a gallery. 
But when you go into the gallery, the curator, who is the, your guide through the space, uh, tells you that it is the gallery of ideas. And the ideas are personified by performers who are enacting little scenes with like little um, like like little installation style executions around that you engage with. You walk up to them and you talk to them and you, and you deal with them and that the piece unfolds as a story about why these ideas are here and who is the curator. And and it all it, it all seems a little messed up and you kind of like get the sense of why it's messed up and how this is essentially an allegory. And I think the reason why it. Yeah, I have a very similar impression to Ed actually about what's going on in New York right now. That there were a lot of these really interesting big pieces, but there were also a lot of really interesting small pieces that happened. And the small pieces were the one that drew some more of my attention because they were essentially more innovative in terms of what they were doing. They they really attacked something in an interesting way. And I thought what the Incomplete Collection did um, through the the Link Dance Theater, who innovated it was the, this integration between uh, per dance performance and theatrical performance. So there's a text, people are talking to you, you're doing a lot of like small conversations with people, but at various moments that are cued, they would break into dance pieces and the and the 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 sort of ending moments of the piece that are more scenes are these very very tight integrations of dance and text at the same time and of course you know dance is a big part of immersive and a lot of the big shows we think of when we think of immersive are dance centric but what i haven't seen as much is the theater being pulled up as high as it is in relation to the dance so it's not mm. stuff that's just expressing itself through dance it's text and dance at the same time where the dance is used to augment the emotional reality of the scenes I'm looking at. And that was extremely powerful. And I think that was coupled with an incredibly smart creative choice to make the whole thing like a fairy tale. So the tone had a fairy tale quality to it. The character seemed a little inhuman all the time. And it worked because that was the space we were in, right? And so I walked out really like loving the atmosphere that was created and loving the fact that these moments were constantly being created that were really visually striking and something that I was literally walking through. And I hadn't seen something that was willing to still be theater, but take all these lessons of the, of the sort of big dance and haunted house style shows into something that could be like, like a little bit more like actually quite a bit, I think more intimate, but also have a much more um, salient story because it had text that could carry that story. So it was a, just a really excellent piece of work. And it, it puts um, Link Dance Theater on the radar for me for anything that they do in the future. Oh, fantastic. Ed, are you going to go tell the whole team? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'll run and tell them all right now. Yes, I was involved with uh, this production. Um, Link Dance Theater have been running for quite some time now. It's, it's their 10th year of running, and I've been involved for the last few years. Uh, and this was our first in-person show post-COVID. Um, and it was the longest run uh, that this relatively small company has done. And it really stretched us and pushed us as far as how do we make a show run for two whole months um, without actors getting sick, without with all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, this was a, I mean, obviously I'm biased. I can't speak too much on it, but I, this was a beautiful piece. And I think it was one where, again, it, it's showing that immersive doesn't mean necessarily you have to have the big budget. You have to have the huge thing. And for us, this is far more, it's a personal story. It's it's about what you bring to it. All of these ideas are incomplete. What does it mean to have an incomplete idea? And what does it mean to fear creation? Like, is it because you are worried that you're going to fail? Is it because you're worried that it's not going to be what you want it to be? So many thoughts and feelings there and allegories. And the fact that Nick picked up on those is is a huge testament to the amazing cast and crew who we had for that one. But 
yeah, we were we were very pleased with it, and uh, it won't be the last time that you'll uh, you'll hear from the incomplete. I'm sure. Blake, your number has come up uh, for our next one. Uh, tell us about Blackwood. Okay, so Blackwood, uh, surprisingly not a double entendre for the burlesque space, was a. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive me. There's going to be a lot of that in this one. It was maybe the most spectacular immersive burlesque hybrid I've ever seen. And this is someone who's coming to it as an absolute burlesque cynic. Frankly, broadly speaking, I am not overly fond of the burlesque space. I think that a lot of times its claims of immersion are overstated. I think a lot of times it has too loose a theme to really be transportive. And while it can have great dance, it oftentimes doesn't gel. Blackwood is not that. Blackwood is a Gunner Montana production. Gunner Montana, treasure that he is, Philadelphian icon, is a burlesque dancer, producer, choreographer, uh, really nationally beloved. People fly in from all over for his annual productions. And this year, it was him doing sort of a takeoff on a spooky witch's Sabbath in the woods. What this practically means is we arrive at the Philadelphian Latvian Society building. Um, we have a pint in the beautiful, spooky, fully decked out pub downstairs. And then once we go one story up, we are in a full Disney universal level quality environment that they have built. We are talking tunnels catacombs, hanging, swinging lanterns, skulls, and little um, Blair Witch dolls in all of the recesses. We're then seated in a forest clearing with a giant house, theater in the round style, with light audience interaction and spectacular thematic dance. Yes, this is light immersive. But there is a space for light immersive in the immersive world, and we need to acknowledge when it hits these delirious heights. All the dancing was on point. The set design could not have been more transportive, and the theming through lines to every number, playing off every little fun trope in the sort of spooky Blair Witch world, um, particularly one number in which uh, someone was a human voodoo doll with one dancer cracking the doll on one stage and one person dancing and contorting and twitching in rhythm to their crackings on the other stage really sticks out to me. Oh, that's a nifty, that's a, that's a nifty gag right there. Everyone uh, left the show dizzy, giddy out of their minds and just sort of buzzing with excitement. Um, I've previously gotten in trouble for saying Philadelphia is too small a stage. I have grown to adore Philadelphia. I love it. Uh, the problem, and this is the quote I give in my little capsule, is that the moon would be too small a stage for Gunnar Montana. Gunnar Montana is the most talented person working in this space that I have seen. And I, whenever I think about this show, I get this kind of like vibrating in my teeth. Like I have to tell everyone about it. And by the way, just to clarify, I'm also coming at this as a gay man for a 95% female burlesque dance show. This is not just some level of titillation here. This is truly spectacular stagecraft alone that's having this effect on me. Something you said at the, the start of it, you know, I've always found there's this 
tension between, you know, burlesque and and this the idea that burlesque, you know, being immersive because the heart of burlesque is performance. And the performative mode, it doesn't preclude things being immersive, but performance centers the performer and immersive centers the audience. And trying to create something in the burlesque space where the performers really should be the stars and yet still encompassing the feeling of being part of something bigger that that the audience is kind of, if not co-equal with, then that at least is, is part of the aggregate. If the audience becomes the chorus uh, in a, in a more active way is, is a really hard line to run. And I think a lot of, a lot of burlesque troops, you know, claim out and then don't deliver on that, but also probably shouldn't be worried about claiming out because their focus should be on building spectacular spectacle. Um, because burlesque, when it's working really well, is an incredible spectacle. It can be very funny, can be funny as it is sexy, can be sad, can be strange, can be weird, can be disturbing. Like I, I've seen tons of burlesque over the years that have hit all kinds of notes and even get like you know fun stories or even real stories out of it um so like but but there's there is something that is like that desire to be part of like the the thing that has been hot or that that has this mystique to it of of being immersive it's so hard for burlesque to be able to do that because of the nature of the performative aspect of it so that the the fact that like they've built this world is is interesting you use this phrase, uh, audience's chorus, that I think really applies here yeah. and is a strong descriptor for Montana's work. With this sort of witch's Sabbath vibe to the whole production, the audience is very much cast as victim to a certain degree. Mm. You are made to be hopelessly lost in this, you know, I cannot overstate how cool the, like, I don't want to say Q spaces, these catacombs and woods and wilderness they have you wander through to get to the central production. And then once you are there, through a combination of lighting, performance, and dance, you are very much made to feel at the mercy of the performers in a certain way. And when I think about that, it's almost as if especially with sort of this in the round staging, which is not in and of itself immersive, Mm -hmm. but by watching the rest of the audience as their reaction to the show, you have now created a situation in which you are observing them, they are observing you, and we have created this sort of communal space to experience it. And that harmony that buzzed through the show is really a core of his works. I know his last work, which I'm fuming that I didn't get to see, um, uh, Bathhouse, Montana, I believe that was his last work, uh, very much did that in the absolute opposite direction. It was fun. It was festive. It was, uh, frankly, a little bit kinky, I heard. But you you were brought in to a sort of joyous space to be very much contributing to an atmosphere of revelry, where here you are very much contributing to this atmosphere of oppressive kind of spooky fear that just sort of 
pulls the tension so taut, especially when so much of the dance is aerial-based. Um, there was a hair suspension artist at one point. Truly, you know, spectacular stuff. And that tension that the audience is providing carried it through. There was a distinct back and forth between what the performers gave the audience and what the audience gave back to each other in addition to the performers. Sounds like quite the right you got to be part of. Uh, Ed, we're going to flip over to one of your selections, which is, is as much about a place as it is about a given show. Uh, take us through that. Absolutely. This one's my little bit of a cheat uh, for the year. And I apologize, but this one for me is important for us to recognize given uh, the recent announcement that's come from this building. This is the McKittrick Hotel roster of productions in 2023. Uh, I'm sure there aren't many people listening who haven't heard of the McKittrick Hotel. This is home to sleep no more in uh in New York City, been running for over a decade at this point, so many incredible performances. But this year, uh, I was really spoiled by being able to attend so many different productions which took place in this hotel. Uh, it's not just Sleep No More anymore. There are other spaces. There's Gather Green. There's an uh, excellent uh, eatery, excellent bar. Uh, this year, I started uh, all of 2023 in the McKittrick at the New Year's Ball, at uh, the Midnight Ball. I literally kicked off the beginning of the year there. And I had another party there for Halloween at their monster event. The McKittrick parties are huge events which take place all over the hotel. Uh, and it's a unique experience because you get to walk around the space and you don't have a mask on. You can talk, you can drink you can get to know people around the space and of course they transform it and uh, have different performers and different uh, uh, exciting new possibilities in the space but on top of that other productions this year i was able to see um at the illusionist table uh, was a truly incredible um evening of magic and mentalism combined with some of the best food um excellent performances there they recently started a burlesque show talking about burlesque hypnotique uh, which has been uh, the mckittrick's take on that with uh, lots of uh, with the work of uh, old sleep no more performers who have brought their own take on it uh, they've done something incredible there with audio and visuals and really utilizing a space there where you're invited to walk around the burlesque space it's still burlesque and obviously some of these shows are more immersive than others and some of them bring uh, different qualities to them but the mckittrick had so much to do this Year. On top of that, they had The Strange Undoing of Prudentia Heart, which is a, uh, a wonderful, uh, very British story uh, set in a pub where they turned the pub and they made it happen in front of you. And then most recently, uh, one of my favorite things to, to return to was Sleep No More, the Salon series. Um, getting to go and experience Sleep No More after all these years. I've been a fair few times at this point, uh, not as many as some people I know, but this was an ex exciting experience because after the production, there's a chance to sit and talk with some of the cast and crew uh, in a very structured uh, Q&A session afterwards. There were some questions they weren't quite willing to answer and some things which they uh, they want to keep some of their secrecy, but just to recognize so much that has happened in the McKittrick Hotel this year. Now, I'm sure everybody on this podcast has heard the news that uh, Sleep No More is closing. It's been slightly extended into February of 2024, but that will be it from what we uh, have been told so far. With that, we aren't quite sure what the future of the McKittrick Hotel will be. We, Unless Noah has more of a scoop than I do. Yeah, Noah. like, you know, one of the, I think the telling things is like, you know, they, they let their PR person go hmm. for the hotel itself, right? So like our contact over there, who's been great to work with over the years. Stephanie uh, Geyer is brilliant. Yeah. 
yeah, Stephanie, Stephanie, we love you. Yeah, uh, St- Stephanie's not there anymore. Uh, it, and, and Stephanie wasn't just, you know, the PR person for Sleeping More. They were for the hotel, uh, for the venue. So it, it does feel like the venue itself is 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 running out of time. I know that the initial Sleep No More announcement was that they would continue doing things. There was shipboard scuttlebutt that um, that the lease was up in 25, that basically like it was winding down. And that was one of the reasons why the show was being, you know, put to bed. Um, money, man, like at the end of the day, it's, it's all about, I'm, and I'm, you know, you have a nice long-term lease, you run that lease as long as you can. And then, and then the, you know, next thing you know, it's 10 years later, 12 years later. And, uh, the landlord's like, Hey, you've been really successful and we'd like to see more of your money. And you know that uh, that's that's not a thing that you want to have happen. So uh, and, you move on. Is, that seems to be what's happening. This is a best of series. So this is the best of talk that we're having. So we don't want to get yeah. too down in the dumps. But yeah. it is so telling that in this year, so many major productions, particularly here in the East, um, which have big budgets, big spectacular to them, uh, big immersive stuff, big names have not succeeded or have had a had to close for one reason or another. Um, and it goes back to what we were saying earlier with Nick. It's not, maybe it's showing that we need a different approach to what is going to take for immersive or what it means for the large scale shows to be successful with non-immersive audiences. Maybe that's a separate question for another time, but that's why for me, I wanted to bring this one up. The McKittrick has been such an institution uh, here in New York City. The Sleep No More has been iconic and has touched the lives of so many, inspired so many other creators. To see it go is going to be sad and is going to leave a big hole here in New York. Um, but today, I want us to celebrate it and I want us to be thankful for all the amazing memories that that hotel, the space, the incredible performers, all the different casts, all the different crews who have come through that space, they have left a incredible mark on the immersive scene. And it's not quite a eulogy yet. I am heading there in just about a week for their next New Year's party. So we have at least one more uh, celebration before we let it go. Let's move on to uh, another small scale piece that's on someone's best of list. Uh, Nick, tell us about Ugly Cry. Yeah, is it hashtag? Is it hashtag ugly cry? Or is hash, it, ugly? Has, it is hashtag. very hashtag. Got, got <laughs> hashtags are on the way out too, uh, but like that's that's a whole other thing. Eras are ending. Hashtags are over, but still. Uh, tell us about hashtag ugly cry. Yeah, hashtag ugly cry. Right on the tail of talking about loss, uh, and it's a piece about like the loss of the loss of venues, the loss of hashtags, um, and uh, I guess the loss of people in the case of ugly cry. So. Ugly Cry is Katie Mack's meditation. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a, it's, a, it's a, about autobiographical piece about Katie Mack's experience grieving the loss of her ex boyfriend who was murdered, her ex boyfriend Eric who was murdered, and I mean, and you know, like suddenly murdered for no reason, right? Like really, like the kind of horrific grief that mm. that people experience, and. Um, and she kind of goes crazy, right? And she she walks you through a show where she shows you how she went crazy and like what that oh, wow. crazy was like. Um, and in particular about this this desire to, because Eric was a professor and a musician and a performer and very, very present online, it was possible for her to kind of live in this online world where he existed. And basically the show is this attempt for Katie to sort of pull you into this 
mission to resurrect Eric through these digital presences. And so you use AR and you scan QR codes and you you basically hear Eric's voice and see Eric on stage with her and participate in these sort of like these these acts that are that are equally sad and kind of pitiful, but also very meaningful and emotional. And it is a constant interactivity. I think the the thing that makes this piece so amazing to me in a way is that Mac is constantly engaging you, constantly. The whole show is Mac talking to you, getting response, participating with members of this audience. So we're sitting in this very small theater, but she's constantly calling us out by name and pulling people on stage and like having people hold her phone so we can film her. And so oh, wow. it, it's a really, really ambitious piece in terms of its, its rhythm. And it, it is deeply uncomfortable, <laughs> right? Because you recognize that some of the things that are going on are not healthy, but she is adamant that she loves technology. She is adamant that the technology is helping her. And even though she recognizes in the piece that she needs to step away from it to heal, she's adamant that this, this process be witnessed and be part of uh, the storytelling. And so what I like, what I think is so powerful about it, I mean, there's a couple of things. Just as a piece by itself, what I think is so powerful about it is, is it has an arc and it does resolve. But it's it's not really about the resolution. It's about depicting that moment that, that that moment of pain and and really showing the the the, in, the chaos of that moment of pain in a way that involves you right so you you can't walk out of it without having your hands a little bit dirty and everything that's gone on uh, and it's it's amazing and the ambiguity of that runs through all of the the, the I, I, all of the symbolism I, I really hope the show runs again I don't want to talk about some of the things that happen in it because they're very profound um, but it's it's an incredibly powerful set of symbols that she's using in this piece but. The other reason why I want to talk about it is it is such a good example to me of how a small piece that is like basically a single performer with some tech um, in a very small audience can make something incredibly innovative and powerful. I've just never seen a piece do what Mac was doing in that work. And of course, it was born out of a, a very particular story in her life. But I want to talk about the artistry of it very specifically because it, to me, is like a sign of, you know, what the potential of the forum is. You know, you can, as a single performer with some tech, make something radically innovative and extremely powerful. And I, I really just want to commend Mac for like what must have been a very challenging design process, not just in terms of the emotional weight of it, but just the the how much she was experimenting with and making work and that she nailed it is incredible. And, it, and, and I just, I want to see more artists do that. It was, it, it, I, it, it, I'm not, I'm never going to forget the central symbols of that show and, and to do that in such a, such a small gesture is, is just amazing. It sounds like such a fantastic piece. It's one I, I didn't get to see, but a few years ago we had say something bunny, uh, which was oh, running yeah. here in New York city. <laughs> now, Similar idea, a single performer, but that was fantastic because that was looking at historic records. That was fine. It, the premise there was a, a found record, found, found mm. series of tapes. And so it was a wire tape, a, a yeah, past wire history <laughs> and discovering the family, discovering what came out of that. But then to look at this piece is then fascinating as something which is a present history. Like it, it's literally happening right now and seeing that grief and seeing that emotion and how social media plays into that. I think that, that must have been just fascinating. Well, and there's there's this element here, particularly with like, you know, the elements of social media and the way that already is like a fragmented experience. And to be truthful to that, you have to kind of like explode it out and then find a way to stitch it together. And it's going to be interesting to see 
as people, you know, try to incorporate, and it sounds like a really successful incorporation of that, try to incorporate this thing that is a fundamental factor in our lives, but that kind of strains against the the lin- truly traditionally linear nature of storytelling. Uh, but like, that's not how we, we don't even get to experience time in a linear fashion anymore, right? You know, like who who, who has an hour where they get to just do a thing for an hour? It's 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 a very rare rare, you know. You gotta you gotta really be defensive, and even then you find yourself half the time picking up your phone and starting to do the other thing that you shouldn't be doing while you're doing the thing you are doing. Um, we talk shows. We're gonna talk moments for an extended moment here. I uh, feel so absurd about to dive into this moment after we just had this incredibly <laughs> serious discussion. Oh my god, everyone, please forgive me. I, I'm I'm given I'm trying to give a little bit of buffer here by like, you know, draw you know, calling attention to the fact that there were shifting modes. But in case they haven't broken down in, in the the episode so far, of course, you know, we talked a little bit about it at the start. There's the the best shows and experiences, roundups that we do, but because we have uh you know, a, a lot of stuff kind of like lasts, like the idea of a best shows of a given year, trying to like recognize the shows that came out in a year. Uh, but people don't necessarily get to stuff the year it comes out. And so experiences, like the the best moments, is kind of for that. And we're definitely going to be talking about a few, but I, but I actually think that, Blake, I think yours, and I do want you to explain how you tag this one. So give us the full run of this and then tell us the show that it's from. So... Uh, I tagged this moment, an ice cream glory hole, and it is from the show Privy Privy, uh, which premiered at the Philadelphia Fringe Festival this year. Uh, Privy Privy asked the bizarre question, uh, what if a gay bathhouse and an old-timey soda parlor got into the teleporter from the fly and just kind of superimposed on each other? (laughs) And functionally, the show is just this one moment. You walk into this kind of surreal, disco-blaring, light-swirling plumes of fog and steam coming up space. You are guided to a private bathroom cubicle. A hand comes through the wall, and that hand has an ice cream cone. Get on your knees. That ice cream cone is yours. And you just sort of throw yourself upon it. And, spoiler alert... As you're doing so, the uh, sort of buff leather daddy soda jerk who led you in uh, comes up behind you and starts drizzling toppings on it. So, oh, here comes a squirt of whipped cream. Here comes a drizzle of hot fudge. Oh, there are fresh strawberries and sprinkles. And you are becoming an absolute mess. You look as filthy as if you were doing the real thing because you are really just shoving your face into an ice cream cone hands-free. Oh, my God. Here's kind of why this made the top moment of my year. Um, Besides the fact that, you know, obviously iconic. (laughs) I went into the show, to be frank, expecting something radically different and radically more depressing. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) What what were you expecting? How were you expecting to be bummed out? (laughs) What was in the description? When I, the description was basically the bare bones description of this, that there is a bathroom cubicle and you'll be fed an ice cream cone with you on your knees. And so in my mind, I'm expecting like 
I don't know, like queer Marina Abramovich level performance art. I'm going into this thinking like, okay, it's the juxtaposition of, you know, innocent pleasure and guilty pleasure and shame and our shame about food and our shame about sex. And I'm going to go into this and it's going to be a weird experience and I'm going to leave thinking. And then the minute I step in the door, my brain is just obliterated in lights, in sugar, in just sort of pure sensorial joy and overload. And yes, all those themes that I thought were going to be there kind of were there, especially in this sort of metatextual analysis when you start picking apart all the components. But, you know, there's a go-go dancer dressed like an ice cream cone in the corner. This is pure absurd joy. And I don't want to say maybe I've become a bit of a cynic after enough years in immersive theater, but maybe I've become a bit of a cynic. Maybe I go into these shows expecting this kind of immersive theater emotion that I don't really have a word for of wistful melancholy of contemplation on of we it's just on we Blake <laughs> but this is a show that just broke my brain with joy and I think that's really worth something and so for the moment you know my heart weirdly enough grew three sizes that day I I have to give it to privy privy it was a weird, spectacular experience. The ice cream was delicious. I left looking disgusting. You you only get your wet wipes after you leave the room. So the entire line waiting to go in kind of sees you dripping. It's it's really an interesting experience. Wow. 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 Like that that the, the visual of someone coming out and just being covered in like a Sunday, basically. Yeah. Um, it, it it's it's double dare. It's like it's yeah, queer adult double dare. Queer adult double dare. Jeez, there you go. There's there's the there's the box quote. Uh, or there's the there's the poster quote for if they remount it. Um, spinning in an entirely different direction, and for a show that did not open this year, and a show that actually has been going on for a while, uh, but that Nicholas went to for the first time this year. Uh, Nicholas, tell us where your moment, or where one of your moments, because we're gonna we're gonna get into another one in a second here, uh, but where your moment for the year was. Yeah, so the the, the moment I'm talking about now came from the Willows, uh, which is uh, you know I think quite well known, especially if you're on the LA side of the immersive scene, like very well known, very long running show. Um, uh, you know, and and the the top line is uh, you are invited to a dinner party to celebrate. Uh, and and commemorate the death of uh, a family member of the Willows family, Jonathan, that then uh, gets weird and complicated and very effectively scary. Uh, in the in the podcast, actually, that you did on Spooky Season, I think you said, Noah, that it's like the A24 version of horror. I think that was your line. And I think that's ex- yeah. exactly right. <laughs> and H- an A24 Adams family is sometimes how I, I describe it. Right? Yeah. And I think that's like, like a dead perfect description of it and i saw it for the first time this year just because i've i've been desperately trying to see it for years and finally finally you know like 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 in one of these pitiful like i am going to fly to la basically for the excuse to see the willows kind of moments i i just saw it um and it it got it got a moment like 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 a really priceless moment for me which i think sums up why i think the willows works and so the moment and i'm gonna keep it very minimal because i think what happens in the willows you should see in the willows because like the surprise of some of the stuff is really powerful but there's a but i'm going to spoil one and i apologize to the i apologize to the show i apologize to the actor in the show 
Um, there's a scene where Angela, who's the daughter of the family, uh, I was in a, I was in a different scene and Angela, who I've, I've been interacting with a lot in the show, pulls me aside and says, I need you. Can you help me with something? And I say, yes. And then asks if I can trust her. And I say, well, I have no reason not to. And then she makes me promise to keep a secret. And then we walk into a set of rooms and she's telling me the story as we walk into the set of rooms that her brother, Jonathan hung himself in, in a, one of these bathrooms and she's tried to find him in every bathroom, but this is the last bathroom she's tried. So she thinks he must be in here. And so she wants me to help her do this ritual. And the ritual involves, and this is the moment, me sitting in a tub in a room that again, is maybe two feet longer than I am if I lied down on it. And I could probably touch both walls from sitting in the tub, right? And this is important when I describe the scene. She hands me what is the suicide note of Jonathan to the family and has me read it as she sits next to me. Um, and as that happens, sounds start to occur around us and the lighting starts to shift a little bit. And then Angela panics and runs out of the room. And when she shuts the door, I have an experience of like sound and purple lights coming through mist all around me. And what sounds like something approaching me from the dark walls I can't see. And this goes on for an amount of time. I don't know how long. And then suddenly someone bursts into the room who is Deirdre, who is one of the, is a servant of the family and everything just stops. And Deirdre's like, what are you doing here? Get out of here. And she grabs me and pulls me out. Um, and that was incredible, right? And it was incredible for two reasons. First of all, um, all of the performers are so present, so present all the time and in, in constantly interacting with you in these like very, very short improvised moments and holding the narrative all the time. And so everything that Angela had built with me up to that point, and I apologize, I don't, I don't know the actor's names, but everything that Angela built with me up to that point in getting me into the tub and sitting with me at the tub as I'm reading this very disturbing letter um, built the horror of that scene. But the second piece of it is like the, the things that were happening were like three feet away from me, right? I mean, they must have been. The room is so small, <laughs> you know, and, and it looks like a bathroom when I walk into it. And like, and who knows what kind of like mesmerism went on there to get me to not notice like the, the obvious light or whatever. But like, I didn't see it. And I went into that piece thinking like, if they're going to do horror this close, I'm going to see the seams and I'm going to have to suspend disbelief a bit to like put myself through this. And I have done that even in good shows, like even in good horror things, there are beats where I'm just like, I'm going to lie over that because if I look really hard, I'm going to see it break. And I did not see it break. Oh, like wow. I did not see anything break. And so I was just constantly waiting to be let loose from the universe. And I eventually just started LARPing in the willows because I was like, this universe feels so real to me. I'm just going to start having real reactions in it because I, I don't know what else to do. I don't feel like this is a haunted house. And so I stopped acting like it was a haunted house and I started acting like I was a character. Um, and that... I, I and I did not want to do that. So like the fact that the show pulled me like that is amazing. As I talk to my friends about it, when I like just sort of pitch them on shows, I basically sum it up by saying like, this is what top shelf immersive looks like. Like if you want to see top shelf immersive at every beat, go see the willows that is performing at a performance level, at a production level, at like, at like the highest level that I think an intimate thing I've ever seen can. Well, word. I keep on, I, I caught the show a couple of times over the years and, and through a couple of its iterations. And just because like, you know, it, it felt wrong for me to like grab the jump seat on, on one of the shows, like for the past couple of years, I haven't like taken them up in the offer to like come through, but you saying that makes me want to see just how far the show has come. Cause I'm certain they're going to bring it back in the fall of this year. Cause it's kind of JFI's signature fall show at this point. They used to do creep. 
but now they, I think they focus on the willows because of uh, a variety of factors, mostly because they love doing it. Um, and so, yeah, now I, I need to see. Also, I haven't gotten that track. And also, uh, I'll I'll quiz you on some stuff. And and after we record, Nick, we're gonna figure out which Angela you got. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll figure that one out. I I know I know a couple of the actors. I, I I'm, I'm curious uh, who was your guide for that. Um, we're gonna stay kind of with you. We're gonna stay kind of with me. And we're gonna bring Ed in on this because uh, another. Another thing you brought up for a moment, and Ed, something you tagged his show, but but qualifies this moment uh, because of when it opened, uh, is to no one's shock, uh, Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. And uh, we've talked a lot about Star Cruiser on the show over the course of the year. Uh, I've waxed poetic a few times. Nick has. Ed, I think we got we got you in at one point. Um, I I will just you know in 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 the the retrospective of it all the thing that I go to the most and it was the moment that brought me into Star Cruiser as a fully fledged experience was of course for those who don't don't know or remember Galactic Star Cruiser uh, was the uh, two night uh, you know two day two and a half day depending how you count time. Uh, uh, experience at Walt Disney World that posited you being a guest on a uh, cruise liner in the Star Wars universe. Uh, you know, it's it's a anniversary cruise for the shipping line. It's the first run to Batu uh, in in however long period of time. And of course, because what could go wrong? Well, everything goes wrong. The bad guys show up. They take over the ship. Uh, there's a hunt for spies, the, the whole nine yards, and all culminates in a lightsaber duel uh, between Rey and Kylo Ren uh, uh, over the possession of both the fate of the ship and an ancient Jedi artifact uh, that could maybe turn the tide of the uh, seemingly never-ending war between the forces of light and darkness in, in Star Wars. From the outside looking in, and and unfortunately the way Disney set this up on the marketing side, there was a lot of outside looking in. Any given component uh, of what they're doing at Star Cruiser uh, can can feel like, well, that's dinner theater or that's some weird attraction you'd go to in the mall. It's only when put in the context and that context being these incredibly committed actors uh, who are who are the thing that makes you buy into the reality of these objectively silly things that you're doing? Uh, and for me, the moment that was so critical was uh, within the first couple hours of us being on the ship, and 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 Nick was you know uh, in in the crew that I was running with. Uh, a number of us found ourselves in uh, the the outside atrium, uh, which was the climate simulator, quote unquote which is really just the back patio of this building uh, that was built with a wall high enough to obscure the fact that you were sitting in a parking lot uh, just outside of uh, what I will always call MGM Studios and is called something else, but I'm old. So uh, one of the theme parks down there and uh, they'd all been decorated with like the space plants from Batu, And uh, you know, the idea was that the ship was simulating the climate you were going to, not that you were standing on a back patio. Um, and so we're out there maybe like 20, 30 minutes after the, 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 the first needle drop moment, you know, the, the beginning of the story where they've brought everyone together and you get to meet some of the characters and we're just futzing around. We're scanning things. We're, you know, trying to figure out well, what is it we're actually supposed to do. 
when one of the characters who is dressed to look like maybe he's just a super fan who's gone a little over the top uh, shows up with a musical instrument and asks us, you know, hey, can he can he make a song out of, you know, what our trip is going to be about? He's busking. Uh, and in that exchange, uh, we wind up making up a song uh, and, and I wind up helping him make up a song in, in an alien language uh, and get it all on get it all on uh, on you know video on on the iPhone and it was just such a wonderful moment of playing with a performer of leaning into my ridiculous knowledge of Star Wars and of just being able to just have a moment where we're all just committing to the bit uh, in a way that felt spontaneous and it was just a moment for a moment's sake. It, it wasn't trying to do a bigger story beat. It, it wasn't, they managed to slip in some stuff that would, that you would thematically pay off later, but it was that kind of attention to making space and time to make the reality of the experience feel real because it was just the moment for the moment's sake. That was the moment that let me completely let go and start playing in that world. Uh, and, and that for me was easily one of the most magical LARPing, one of the most magical improv moments and one of the most magical immersive moments I've ever had full stop, let alone this year. It is, it is a you know top three all timer moment for me. Ed, Nicholas and I have been going for a hot minute. Uh, how about you? What what for you was a, a key Star Cruiser moment? I mean, it really was such a special experience. Like so many people, this was a last minute, once in a lifetime opportunity. I found out I was able to go a week before. I was working with, I was <laughs> literally at a, I was at a summer <laughs> camp working with kids. I get a Discord message and I abandon everything and I go and I immediately get on this booking and was very lucky to go with some incredible immersive creators um, who came along with me. Um, I've been getting more and more into LARP over the last year and I love the art form. I love to see where it's going. Just a quick shout out to Burn Bright Young Things, uh, Head of the Family, Monstrosity and Intercon, all incredible experiences which I did this year. You're all brilliant and if I could speak about you for hours, I would, trust me. But for me, this was such a beautiful experience because this is LARP done well and LARP done right in that it really is so flexible to the needs of you as the audience member and there are different people who want to engage in different levels and that's great um like i said i work with kids that's that's my day job no one laughs better than kids they are so ready and willing to jump in and be who they are so my favorite moment um just a so whilst we start the production whilst we start the show the 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 weekend however long it was um, I noticed that there was a, a couple of kids and there was one little girl who was dressed as Ray Skywalker, uh, like completely dressed. Uh, she had the hair done. She had the uh, the outfit and everything. And I noticed her the first day and she was great. She was sweet. She was doing her thing. Cut to day two and Ray Skywalker, the actual Ray Skywalker, makes it on board the ship. And my head is, I know this is an actress, right? I know this is make believe. My heart 100% believes this is Ray Skywalker. Like I was invested. And so Ray meets little Ray and says, what's your name? I'm Ray. What's your name? I'm Ray. And throughout the rest of the show, they were Ray and Ray and they were inseparable. It was beautiful. It was so sweet. 
there's a scene later towards the end where a select few go to a space with uh, adult Ray, and Ray has a special secret to share. But as she does, she turns to everybody in the room and says, what do we do? How do we defeat the darkness? What can we do? How can we, how can we make it through all this? And she turns to little Ray, and little Ray sits up straight, so proud, so bold, and says, we have to beat them. We have to believe. We can't give up hope. We have to keep going. And I, along with every other adult in the room, start tearing up. Like, it's just beautiful. And it's so pure. It's innocent. It's 100%. There's no no cynicism. It is just, this is Star Wars. And this is a kid expressing what has to happen. Now, the rest of the show happens, and it's fantastic. And as we get to the very, very end, I see little Ray, and she's with her family. And for the first time, I realized... Uh, Right now she's sitting in a, in a wheelchair, which I hadn't seen her do at all the rest of the, the, the weekend. But anyway, I went up to the mum and I said, look, I, don't, I, I, want to, I want to be respectful. I want to just, can I say hi to little Ray? So I did. And I said, hi, Ray. I just want you to know you were one of my favorite things of this whole time. I hope you had a good time. It was so great to see you meet Ray and do all of this. Did you have a good time? And she turns to me and she says, oh, it was amazing. And it's even better because this is my make-a-wish. And I didn't know they could make a wish this big. And I tell you now, and I get tingles, and like I, it just it took everything in me not to break out and just start crying immediately there, because this was live action role play. This was interaction. This was a lived experience. And for this incredible kid who I hope is doing the best of best things right now, this was a transformative moving experience and I told this story to my wife when I got home and I just burst out and sobbed because it was beautiful it was not about anything other than play and interaction and seeing this world come alive for this kid and seeing her do it made me want to do it even more um star cruiser has gone too soon there's all sorts of things there there's lots of things which we can tear down and things which we can analyze and say what what if what could have been but for me, it really was just such an incredible experience. And that's why it was, without a doubt, my most moving and best moment of the year. Nicholas. Oh my, are you kidding? Are you <laughs> kidding? <laughs> you gotta, you gotta follow that. <laughs> this is unfollowable. You, you've sunk us, Ed. You've sunk us all. <laughs> yeah, I did a thing at Star Cruiser. What? <laughs> Well, I mean, look, I mean, like, we all all get to have Make-A-Wish kids, like, you know, like, plump up our anecdotes, like... Ed, you, you gotta warn, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, well, this is the thing, like, I genuinely, and this, I think, what, for whatever reason, I hadn't noticed anything. Like, I, I, she hadn't had a wheelchair, a tool for the whole experience, anything like that. It was just, she was so in the world, and so was I, and so was everybody else on that ship, um... Like I say, again, this is a celebration. This is something just to, to recognize, but it really was so incredible and moving. And and we also got to all do the Star Wars stuff. And it was my first time on Batuu and getting to do all that for the first time was incredible. Like it was Star Wars and we got to play as well. But like, yeah, it was, that was a real special moment. Yeah. All right. You want, you want to do it? <laughs> I mean, you don't have to. I mean, you can, you can just be I'll like, you know. No, 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 no. It's it's cool. It's cool. It's cool. It's it, it's it, but just to warn to warn the audience, not that good. <laughs> um, 
Uh, yeah, so I I, I want to I'll go go back to something I said at the beginning about about like you know I, I'm an old old school larper. If you if you follow if you if you listen to some of them or the the like you, you you listen carefully to all the podcasts and you hear me come up, you'll you'll catch me on a bunch of larp stuff because that's that's like my wheelhouse from a long time ago. And so I sort of had a sense going into Star Cruiser. I was like, this is a LARP, right? Because I knew I knew some of the people involved and I would talk to them about it. I was like, it's a LARP, right? Like I'm reading I'm reading the descriptions. This is a LARP. And everyone was like, no, it's not a LARP. Like they, they were they, they did not want it talked about that way or thought about that way. And so what was interesting for me about the piece and so my moment, which I've talked about in the podcast before, so I'll just sum it up quickly, was that. Uh, one of the other things that Noah and and I and our group did was have another moment in the climate simulator where we have this this moment where uh, we're talking to someone called Asaja. It's a, the character's name is Saja Kier, and Saja is is introducing us to some concepts about the forest. And then as we meditate in the room, um, like physically, like literally physically, rocks start moving on this little rock garden, and we see this physical manifestation of the forest in front of us. And that's and 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 she has a line in that. And I know from other people's performances, this is a line that comes up in the show. And, that, and I'm bringing this up for a reason, because I think it's really interesting where like that line is I've never seen the force manifested so strongly before. Right. Like that a line like that. Right. And a line like that appears in a lot of these performances. And there are beats in the performance where those lines appear a lot. And then this is knocking that that's the magic of theater. Right. Like the magic of theater is that. She has that line. She can deliver that line. The magic of this kind of theater is she can deliver it at different times. She can hold it in a quiver and pull it out. And I've seen shows that do that and they do it very well. And that was very good. That's not my moment though. My moment is I'm LARPing Galactic Star Cruiser. So when that happens, I run with my character's motivations on it. And I make a whole bunch of decisions that essentially without boring everybody at this moment have to do with my character's backstory and some mysteries in it and some resolutions. He comes to it because he has a vision through the forest, but he's never had that before. He doesn't realize he's force sensitive, so he doesn't know what to do with it. So later on, like while we're running around doing everything else we're doing, all the stuff that Noah was talking about, I happen to be by myself. I happen to see Saja here. And so because I'm LARPing, I ask Sajakir if we can talk because my character is going through an emotional turmoil. And Sajakir runs around with me for a little bit, just stops whatever she was doing, runs around with me for a little bit, finds the climate simulator again, and then has a conversation with me. And I know for a fact this conversation had nothing to do with the plot of Galactic Star Cruiser because I made it up and I just introduced it to her and I just started talking to her about it and she started running with me with it and then other characters came up and we all started talking about it and then I started being a little bit of vulnerable with with my character Sindak and then she started being vulnerable with her character and now we're suddenly talking about these beads she's carrying and what those beads mean and how they're actually related to her mother and I'm talking about the loss of my family and suddenly we've got like four people in this conversation about what attachment means in the forest and how desperately my character actually needs to be reattached to humans because he's been separated for too long so long he's falling apart and i get to the end of that moment and th that arc continues but that moment that moment made me realize that like no this is not a quiver full of of arrows that this person has like this person is improvising with me right now it's a performer improvising with me right now on my plot and she's carrying my plot and she's thinking about my plot and my plot is floating in the water of this thing. And I'm not going to change the lightsaber battle and I'm not going to like change the Jedi artifact, but it traced, you know, it's a term we use in some of the work I do. We, it's a trace that got cut through this experience mm. and it lasted. And 
it changed how I think about immersive work like this, right? Because I, I didn't know, I, like, are there ways actors can do that? Can actors do that? Can they hold it? LARPers can, right? But LARPers are all bunch of creative users running around bouncing off each other, right? That's not people who have to manage a show. That's not people who have to put on spectacle. That's a different thing, right? And that was the first time I had ever seen someone hold something that well, that long, and be part of a show. And I, 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 it just raised the bar for me forever on like what I think um, acting in these experiences can be. And so like, like that, I, I've praised Sajik here a lot in this podcast. This is not a diminishment of that praise. I just, I just feel like, you know, like I want to, I don't want to, I don't want to be like effusive about it, but like that, 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 and the, and the coaching of all of those actors, right. Cause it's all of those actors. She's the one that I had the experience with, but so many of them have that. It just, it's just, I, I don't have, uh, a, it's the highest mark, right? It's the apex of that kind of experience that I've had. And I mean, the contrast is with a LARP that we would do as the audience and participants, we do a LARP, we go hard for a weekend and then we're done, right? Or maybe a week or campaign, whatever, but we're done. The difference here at Star Cruise is that these performers are laughing on this level or not laughing, whatever they want to call it, whatever they, whatever the official Disney term is. They're doing that for us as audience members, audiences of up to 200 at a time and then doing it again and again and again, and being able to use that emotion and be able to give that personality and personal and specific experience to you and something to me and something to Noah and everybody else who was able to go, but then also to be able to then replicate that another time at a different time with a different audience and a different group who might be more in the mood for silliness or somebody else who's in the mood for storytelling. Like that is a huge testament to that training to be able to do that regularly to a wide, wide audience. Well, and that's the thing here, right? Is like what's interesting about that show is that a not small percentage of the audience is LARPing, and for them, it is a LARP. For those performers, that's it's theater, right? For some other part of the audience, it's just dinner theater stage show they're watching, right? Like that show, it's five different shows all at once. And the linchpin to it is that it is pure commitment to the moment, pure acting in the moment on the part of the actors. And the fact that they not only can be in the moment with someone who's delivering, you know, like, like trying to drive some, some LARP plot action, but also deliver what the show is about at the same time. And I see like a mirror image of that. I always think of this moment years ago. Uh, I, I saw Third Rail Project's uh, The Grand Paradise uh, within like twice in 72 hours. And there was this one scene that I got, uh, you know, the same performer for twice. And she managed to commit perfectly to the moment each time. So it felt brand new while she was giving us this ritual moment. And then I, I also got to have her uh, at the end of the show one time, having had someone else at the end of the show previously, where there was this kind of right, there was kind of this magic trick of like taking up water and wringing it out and like it disappearing, the whole thing. They have this little speech to it. And on the first night I saw it, uh, I got someone who didn't really, it was, it was one that, it was a performer who wasn't committed to the language. I'll just put it that way. And then the second night, two nights later, it was this performer who had managed to like do this one bit 
with full conviction each time, this, this bit that was interactive that was, that was on the poetry. And then here we were in this closing moment with her and she just nailed the, 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 the poetics of it and the small interaction of it and made me realize how much a performer can bring to a moment that is scripted that happens over and over again, or, you know, particularly with, with like, you know, Saja Kier, uh, with, with, with that particular actor, you know, hearing people have like the same reaction, different people having the same reaction to like moments with that character and how that, that actor grounded them in that, you know, to, to use your quiver metaphor, right? Like uh, that's, that's in that performer's quiver, but that's the testament to, as Ed was saying, the training to the structure that the structure is creating spaces to make those moments and the actor rises to the challenge of delivering that moment. And that more than anything is what this form affords for and what makes it so valuable and what makes it worth spending the money, the, the large amount of money for, because you're not going to get that just going to see Godzilla minus one, a spectacular movie or going to see, you know, poor things, which I still need to see, right? Like whatever movies coming out or, or going to see Hamilton, you're, you're not going to, you know, in, the, in, uh, on Broadway, you're not going to get that. Uh, you can only get that here. And it's, it, it's, it's these peak experiences. Um, all right. This may very well be the end of the show, the, the way it goes, because but it all depends if we end another segment on Star Cruiser. So, uh, <laughs> Blake, Ed, Nicholas, thank you all so much. It's a blast. Yeah. Yep. Thanks for another year, everybody. <laughs> joining us for this segment is our Toronto correspondent curator curator we bumped you up to curator this year Katrina Latt Katrina how's it going it is going wonderfully it's been such a great year fantastic good to hear all of your your, your top three picks uh, for shows and experiences are on the website as people are listening to this I'm gonna have you talk about two of them and then uh, also let you touch upon your experience for the year because we kind of did a whole podcast episode about your experience but Let's start off with the, uh, or it's not with the experience, with your moment. Uh, let's start off with one of the shows. Uh, and I, I, this was a show that when I read your review of it, I was like, I so wish I could see this. And that would be No Save Points from Outside the March. Tell us about this show uh, and why it became uh, in, your, in your picks for best of the year. Yeah, for sure. So I think one of the things I love most about immersive theater is how it really puts us as an audience within the shoes of what's going on and, and really, I mean, for lack of a better term, immerses that, us in it. And of all the shows that I saw this year, No Save Points took that power of immersive and utilized it in such a strong, powerful way. Um, to, for those of you who are not familiar with the, the concept of it, um, it's a autobiographical one-man show. Uh, Sebastian Hines talks about his journey with his mother's um, diagnosis of Huntington's disease and tells a story through a series of custom-made video games that the audience actually gets to play by controlling Hines 
uh, within the games themselves. So it's really cool technology, really powerful performance, really powerful writing. I cried, I laughed. Um, I bought tickets again the second time around just because I wanted to see it another time and share it with other people. Um, I probably got five or six people within my network to, to go and watch that show. And I wish that more people had seen it just because of how incredibly powerful it was. What, if anything, was was the moment that made you realize this was something special? Hmm. I think they, they do something really clever in that um, there's, I think, four different custom-made video games that they use, and they be, um, they are of increasing intricacy and increasing amounts of audience participation. Um, so at first, they're kind of easing you into it with a very um, very sparse set design. But when the second design uh, of the second video game comes around uh, and it's lights and colors and lots of movement, um, that's when it really clicked to me that, hey, this is something super special. The What they're doing with technology here, what they're doing with set design, what they're doing with the actor is just really, really top notch. And so I loved how they kind of eased us into it or familiarized us with the concept of how to control the game first and then went all all no stops and just went for it uh, with all the flashing lights and color and, and joyful joyfulness. And how, how does the controller work? Are you handed like a, like a Nintendo controller, an Xbox controller, or, or like it's something on your phone? What, what's the mechanism here? Uh, it's a Game Boy. They hook you up with, does everyone get the Game Boy or does no. like one person's given the Game Boy? Or yeah. How does that work? Okay. So at the start of the show or when you're first applying to go to the show, you fill out a survey based on um, how do you like video games? What do you enjoy about video games? And then based on that, they pick a couple people to sit in what they call the player's pen and mm. they're given the, the Game Boy. Um, and then during a latter portion of it, the Game Boy gets passed around and everyone gets to play. Um, so it's a little bit of both. Um, the second time around I watched, actually, I was lucky that I got to be chosen um, to sit in the player's pen. So the first time around, I, I observed and I uh, got to play during that, that that latter portion. But the second time around, I got to be one of the special chosen free, chosen few who got that Game Boy and got to play in the very front. Take us through this a little bit. So you're holding the Game Boy and... You know, for those who remember, there's like, you know, there's a cross pad on your left thumb and then there's two buttons, uh, B and A on your right thumb. And of course, there's select and start. Um, there's there's also the screen. What are what are you looking at and, and how is the the people on the stage reacting to what you're doing? So it differs on which level or which which game within the show you're playing. Right. Um, they, what they do with those is um, they combine haptic technology, which is how the um, Heinz who's on stage knows what button you're pressing. So uh, if you're pressing uh, the left trigger button or the right keypad button, it'll um, I, I, not shock him, but buzz him on certain parts of his body so he knows what you've pressed. And then during ladder um, games, what they do is they combine that with motion capture technology as well, too. So, and, and he's moving. Is there anything on the screen of the game that, that's going on? Are there graphics there or is it only the stage? Only the stage. So okay, okay. you have the controller, but you're not looking at the, the controller. You're looking at the, at the stage. Okay. So the, the, the stage component is the, is the game. Okay. Exactly. All right. I, I get it. I, I have a better sense of 
what, what they've probably done here. I'm no engineer myself, but I'm like, okay, they've stuck an Arduino in a Game Boy and they're they're doing some haptic stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that haptic queuing, that's pretty that's pretty pretty clever. The other one you have, or one of the other ones you have, because you have three, but we're going to talk to you today. Uh, in there is another piece that involves a game. Uh, so there's a little, a little theme here this year. And oddly enough, I think just after you reviewed it, or just after the review came out, uh, was when I was like on that trip to Singapore, and I ran into someone from the production team who was in Singapore. <laughs> For that conference somehow and i was like how like and this is, a, this is a show that's been both in mexico city and in in toronto where you are um tell us about asses dot masses or asses masses so in in short it's a seven hour participatory video game so you are locked in, not locked but you are in a room <laughs> with an audience of people for seven plus hours or however long it takes to finish the entirety of the video game and all of you are taking turns going up to the front to grab that controller and to play a video game. Uh, it was uh, the kind of show that I was very excited when it it, uh, it came out, and I was trying to find a friend to come along with me. But it was kind of hard to get someone to commit to seven hours. Hey, you come play a seven hour video game with me inside of a theater? I swear <laughs> it's going to be great. Uh, I was even talking to my my mom about it. She was like, "Are you going to stay the entire night?" I said, "Ah." We'll see. Uh, and a lot of people did not stay the entire night, but the few of us who did, uh, by the end, there was just this awesome sense of camaraderie. Uh, and what one of the things I loved about that experience, actually, is um, the way that us as an audience were interacting with od- other audience members very much echoed the way that the party members within the video game were interacting with each other. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning... What the game was about. Yeah. Yeah. So the game is, uh, it's about a group of donkeys um, that because of the uh, Industrial Revolution and the, the advent of the machine age are out of job, out of work. And so they are on a quest to try to find a way to uh, bring back the old olden days where they were of importance. Um, and it becomes a little uh, fantastical. There's some uh, messiahs involved and some... Um, some uh, allusions to racism and to social issues in general. So it's uh, a a very silly and a very deep and serious game at the same time. Mm. What was the moment? Cause you know, seven hours is a long time. So I guess not so much what the moment, what, what kept you there that entire time? Cause you noted not everyone stayed and and I wouldn't even imagine that most people would. What was it that made it so sticky for you? I think it's that sense of community that we came across within the the audience. Um, One thing they did that I thought was very clever was that they organized many intermission breaks every couple of scenes. And during those breaks, they had um, at one point they gave us a meal. At one point there was free popcorn um, and they really encouraged us to chit chat amongst the other audience members. Um, So it got to the point where I was enjoying playing with these people because they were people that I had chatted with in the lobby. I had had dinner with. Um, And so I'd I'd come to get to know these people. And so as 
this this person who I had dinner with is on on stage playing a platformer game, and it clearly doesn't really know how to play platformers, but it's super into it. The entire crowd is just cheering along and just having so much fun um, because we're all really in it together. And I, I think that's the power of Asses Masses and that it takes that communal experience and really heightens it. And that experience is also very key to the game itself and the, some of the storyline of the game itself, too. This this idea of a, a critical component of of this immersive field being the social experience and the social design of the event. That's something I'm, I'm coming to more and more uh, these days. And it's, it's kind of top of mind for me about how, how is this the design, not just conveying story or creating a sense of agency or creating a sense of like reality, uh, you know, for the fiction, but also how that's playing out amongst the people who are not paid to be there, right? Amongst the participants that feels so key. And it's, it's been really interesting to see what the successful designs are. There's often an element of play, but then there's are these tiny little, you know, tiny little things of just like how they're feeding you or where they're creating air, right? Where's, where's the air in, in the, in the space to like let people breathe and just kind of like be together and, and not feel like they're constantly just like pushed, 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 because we got to get the content out. Like this, this idea of slowing down is, is I'm probably also getting old, but uh, <laughs> um, another kind of big communal experience uh, makes up your moment for the year. And that was, as you put it, binging on immersive at Edinburgh Fringe. And we did do a whole episode about that, but I wanted to give you a moment to sort of talk, you know, now that we're a little more removed, like, why did you settle on that being like your big moment for the year other than like being an incredible trip? Um, I mean, I mean, I'll admit that picking that as my moment was a bit of a cop out just because there were so many shows I wanted to pick and I could only pick three for my best of. Um, so I thought, you know what, I will put my moment as Edinburgh because there are so many good shows there that we don't have to pick amongst all the the awesome experiences that I had while over there. Um, but yeah, it was just the individual shows were amazing, but the entire festival as a whole, I thought was just so special, just walking around the streets of Edinburgh, knowing that all these people in this incredibly busy city are all there to celebrate art. And there's something so special in being in an atmosphere like that. Um, I've been to a couple other arts festivals or culture festivals, mostly in North America. And what I thought was interesting about this one is that whereas in the North American festivals I've I've been to, there's been a pretty big corporate presence. Mm. At Edinburgh Fringe, I hardly saw any advertising or any brand activations, which was wild to me because the type of people who were there, both in terms of the like um, the salary demographics and the number of people who were there, they could make a killing in terms of brand activations or or selling corporate space there. But uh, it wasn't like that. And there was just something so lovely and pure about that. Oh, that's what a dream. Mm -hmm. That does sound wonderful. Well, Katrina, Thank you so much for doing the Edinburgh coverage this year, for for 
taking the reins on on being up there in Toronto. There's so much going on up there, and I know you've gotten to like a couple other parts of Canada as well over the course of this year. It's been such a boon to be able to know what's going on in that area, and because there's a lot of really inventive work happening right where you are. So I just want to thank you for for holding the fort down and. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm, I'm glad to keep on the, on the end of your show this year. Happy to be here and happy to be able to talk about how great Canada is for all of the, the no pro audience. Joining us now for the third and closing segment of this year's year in review episode, uh, are folks from all over the NoPro universe. Uh, Laura Hess, our arts editor here in LA. Patrick McLean, our a remote editor uh, and Chicago curator. Uh, we've got uh, Kevin Gossett, who's our LA Reviews editor. Danielle Riha, is that how you say it? I got it right? Okay, I got your new last name right. Uh, your married last name. Uh, coming from Denver. And Martin Jimenez, uh, our roving reporter, who's also based in Los Angeles. Uh, and the team is sharing stuff from all over the land. Uh, we are kicking this one off by going through one instance of a best experience from everyone and then looping through our best m- favorite moments. Uh, Laura, you drew the short straw. Uh, tell us about one of your best experiences of 2023. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this one. This will um, come up later towards the end of our conversation when we dive a little bit into state of the field and the future of immersive. So this was on the wings of Hermes, which was created and presented by the very storied uh, heritage luxury French brand Hermes. And there was only one U.S. stop. Um, This was in Los Angeles. This was over the summer, over at the Barker Hangar in Santa Monica. And so this this falls under the umbrella of experiential marketing, but in a really interesting way. And the basic premise, it was an invitation. It was billed as an ode to daydreaming. And it was based on the Greek myth of Pegasus and his seven foals. And they all need to figure out how to fly. And they're going to do this by tapping into their individual magic. And so you have this... um, you have seven vignettes within the Barker hangar. There was this very lush, black, theatrical, velvety space that consisted of seven stations, if you will. And each station had a miniature set and then lofted above it was a screen. And within these seven vignettes, some of them were more lyrical. Some of them were, uh, I mean, quite charming and hilarious. One example that kind of made the rounds when people were referencing this production was one of the iconic handbags of Hermes. There was a bag opera. And so these are puppeted. These are puppeted by performers. And there is a, of the miniature sets, they are, there's an, 
they move into action and it is simultaneously being filmed. And then that is cast to the screen above. And so all the special effects, all the behind the scenes moments, whether it's a fog machine, whether it's the performers themselves, if you're looking at the miniature set, you're seeing it in action. You're seeing the full picture of what is happening, all those theatrical elements. But when you look up to the screen and it's just what the camera is recording, it captures its own specific magic. So it is this very just interesting, I haven't really seen anything like it, blend of dance, of moving objects, of puppeteers, uh, music, cinema, in what they then called a seven-part play. It was extraordinary. I, I can't speak highly enough of it because I think it's easy to discredit a luxury brand like Hermes or that it's experiential marketing. And this was true creativity. It was flawlessly executed and it was a real celebration of imagination. What was a lot of superlatives in there, but what for you was the moment when you felt like you were, you know, in the presence of something special? When, when did, when did that click in for you? while you were there? I think the it clicked in with this kind of split reveal of the specific magic within the theater and then the specific magic of the cinema. And so it embodied both, it captured both. You could sort of step into both. Um, I also think it didn't take itself too seriously. I think that it was, it truly was a celebration. And I found myself within each vignette, and they were very, very different. And it, there was cohesion. There was definitely aesthetic cohesion, but, and, and they were short. I think I was, uh, the, the show itself was somewhere between, I think, 45 minutes and an hour. And I, I just found myself in that, we talk a lot about flow state, uh, more in relationship to the act of creating um, or in physical movement. But we've talked about flow state and experiential, not necessarily using those words, but we talk about that all the time, presence, resonance. And I found myself in a real flow state during each of these vignettes. And I think that that is a sign of just true creativity. It was brilliantly executed. Um, and I think the core of that is that it was such a celebration of play. It really was. It didn't feel like, oh, it's a branded experience. And I'll say I've not received a single, it was free, open to the public. I did have to RSVP using my email address. So I, I can appreciate our sort of more cynical takes on, oh, they've got my data. I haven't received a single thing from Hermes since then. You couldn't buy anything at the event. So it really felt like if you kind of just take away the Hermes part of it, um, it, it felt like this incredible theatrical production that utilized all these elements in such a seamless and brilliant way. It just didn't feel like marketing. All right. 
going to keep going around the horn. Uh, Patrick, uh, you are up uh, with something you caught in Chicago. Yes. And this dovetails very nicely with Laura's talking about with like expert execution and flow, because one of the best experiences I had was Port of Entry, which is a co-collaboration between local company Albany Park Theater Project and then Third Rail Projects based in New York, best known for Then She Fell. This is a engrossing um, tableau collection of the modern American immigrant experience. Audiences go to Albany Park. They actually go to this neighborhood and enter an unassumed built unassuming building and then are guided through um essentially uh, a reconfigured but it's a courtyard a pre-world war ii courtyard building and interact with uh, a great many of the tenants and um people living there who share very intimate and thought-provoking feelings about how they came to live in this building and it's sometimes it's a beautiful celebration of them coming together and looking at a long lineage of families who have shared this space. And some of them are devastating in a very dramatic and powerful way about how much sacrifice was required to get here. And it's essentially a very much a dark rail experience where you there's touch points and interaction engagement with the performers, but you walk around the space and are guided and have these kind of projection moments. Sometimes it's just really as simple as just listening to someone or sitting around the table. And then there are some really highly theatrical moments where there's projections, the sound changes to something that is you wouldn't hear in a Chicago apartment. And it, it was just so wonderful to be in the space and to have this experience. And I think Personally, for me, the big takeaway was these performers, because a big part of the Albany Park Theater Project is that it's a they use they have their youth ensemble. I believe that's the correct term. And it's all kids from the neighborhood, like preteen, who are honing their craft and their skills. But some of them have to play parental figures or, you know, uh, grandparents and things like that. And there's some really heavy engagement. These kids were powerful. It was, they were compelling and engaging and it just moved me so incredibly to be in this space and to hear these stories be told from like the youngest generation of those who have had it. Uh, Martin, this was also something you got a chance to check out when you went through Chicago. So yeah, I also experienced uh, this and yeah, to to piggyback off that, the fact that they're all high school kids. They're all kids in in high school, uh, of high school age, embodying uh, experiences that some of them may have exper- that that they might have in their being. Some like I remember one particular task I was given when I was there was uh, interfacing with like a father having to prep his kids backpack for school and like here are the list of here are the list of things and you and you can tell because he's supposedly a refugee who's illiterate in, in english you have to like give this task it's like such a such a powerful moment that i experienced that i had that it was yeah go ahead 
Well, that whole room, that that was a brilliant room because uh, my interaction, I had it with the children and we were putting away groceries that the other family member, other people living in the building had donated. And they having to explain like what that macaroni and cheese, like microwavable, like cup, you just add water, stir it like, oh, cheese. I'm like, this this isn't cheese. Like if just in the sense of like really trying to like set their expectations and like and show them what cooking is, which is just microwaving things out of a can and stuff. But then also the, the other interaction is that with the, with uh, the mother, the mother is trying to get cross town to a appointment and, you know, it speaks, there, there's a language barrier issue and you're trying to, she has to get somewhere at a very specific time. And it's like, you got to take two buses and how do you communicate that to ensure that this person is where they need to be to keep the refugee status going? Yeah. And what was equally as amazing about it, in addition to that, was the breadth of cultures that uh, were the core of each room. One room was, uh, I believe it was like um, uh, Syrian refugees, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. One, one main room was a Mexican immigrant family having to yes. worry about ICE. One, like, hopefully this is not too much of a spoilers. Um <laughs> One was a a Filipino family, and one was a Japanese family. And the fact that like the breadth of cultures and the unif not and the nuances of each culture's cha- uh, challenges and the uniformity of their challenges was uh, one of the most stunning things about about Port of Entry for me. Yeah, because Albany Park here in Chicago is known for being a um, destination for immigrants to move here. It's a very kind of um, it's not low income, but it's very affordable for people to get apartments. And there's a ingrained sense of community. And it's apparently one of the most diverse neighborhoods in the city. And I think with that, with what um, you were just saying, is that there's just it's simplicity too. like there's such big ideas here. But then the inter- the interaction or the uh, conversation you have are so pointed and so specific that it just being there and just engaging in a quote normal dialogue or a quote normal activity is just mind blowing and just takes you there to those places in a profound way. And 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 also for the listeners, um, this has also been announced to extend into the summer. So. Uh, unlike other pieces we're going to mention, which by now or regret later, this has enough time to, uh, for, for listeners to actually hopefully experience. Although it's also such a hot ticket that I believe they're like doing a lotto based on the wait list for the next, next tranche of tickets. Yeah. And it's a hot ticket because these, because these are youth performers. They have to go to school during the week. They have other priorities, very important priorities they need to do. So the run, the run. What's more important than being in an immersive theater show? How are their educations? Come on. No one needs an education in America. That's what the AI is for. Or so some of my uh, class. Students yeah, just, are, teaching are we getting here. a free uh, pro- uh, lesson from Professor Nelson here? <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe a little bit. We'll just have those kids uh, use the AI to do their homework and just let them perform. That's what the AI is for, right? Exactly. So, but, uh, but yeah, no, no. Uh, to a good point, yes, it, it is. It is carrying on, and uh, and there will be opportunities 
Although I do recommend everyone gets uh, on the wait list if they think they're going to uh, maybe want to take a stab at it. Or, or, uh, we're gonna I'm gonna move us I'm gonna move us forward here because we got so many cool. to get through uh, for this segment. Uh, Martine, you are you are up though uh, to tell us about uh, another one from your list because I think maybe Albany Park might be also on your list. Uh, uh, telling us about uh, what might be uh, the the single biggest uh, rock show on earth at this very moment in time. Yeah. Um, much to Noah's chagrin. I have seen you two in the sphere twice now. Uh, mm-hmm. Once from the yes. floor, once twice. from the <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, I, once from the floor, once from the third to last row. And as we talk oh, about. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I've had intentionally completely opposite experiences of the sphere and um as i wrote in my review back in november when it first came out the the sense of scope of the venue writ large is groundbreaking because when you think of large-scale concert venues of fifteen thousand plus you're generally thinking of repurposed sports arenas as opposed to the sphere, which was custom built for music events and EDM and God bless us, esports on occasion. Um, so the fact that they have the capability of doing a lot of design elements and really enveloping the audience um, as far as uh, how video interacts with the show. Uh, I, I noticed you made a gesture there. Now I mean, you probably have something to comment on. Um, no, that was that was making sure you kept the mic in front of your face. Yeah, turn <laughs> <laughs> um, your mic off. <laughs> you should know you're a sound guy. <laughs> I, I just turn them on. I don't use them a lot. Um, <laughs> but but the, the the nature of how the venue the venue works so, both sonically because it's also a groundbreaking experimental sound system as well as oh, yeah, being a uh giant video wall uh which still like to an extent almost uh overshadows the band and overshadows the musical experience but the same but at times and and I was able to notice it watching it this past week where they were able to effectively iris in and iris out. And there were moments where you were a little bit more aware of a constraint of how much video wall they were using. And they actually didn't use the full video wall until midway through the second show, uh, through the second song, right? So the first couple songs, it's smaller. And then it's sort of, like then you can't not see it from wherever you're looking and it's so stunning and it's so everywhere um it was it was really as mentioned quite groundbreaking not the Ooh. most immersive show i've seen you two do i still stand by innocence innocence experience was that or for better immersive rock shows you can have xx at park out of the army or a feists tour last year but as far as bringing immersive rock to the masses at a scale that can be translated, uh, this is it. So let me let me drill in on this idea of of how immersive is this because 
the the possibility of these immersive media venues, right? The sphere, you've got Cosm coming down the line. And there are affordances in these venues to create that kind of tension between the audience and the material, uh, kind of push-pull. Not necessarily in an in a uh, interactive sense, but in an attentional sense of you know where the audience is fixing their attention isn't necessarily you know driven just by performance. Is that what is going on? inside the sphere because having been inside the sphere when it was dark and they were just running test patterns and being around the outside and getting the lowdown on how the sound system works, which is absolutely incredible. They can, they can, for those of you who don't know, they can target a four row, uh, a four, four seat row a block of four seats and target that with like a single language track and right next to it can be another block of four seats that can have an entirely different language track going on. And there's no bleed over between the two. If you were to step out of that field, you would hear nothing. Uh, it is, it is like a magical level of work. It, it's not exactly nothing. Um, right. It, like the, the, the demo they have in the lobby, you actually get it. Like it's amazing because it, it, you hear gobbledygook and then you stand in this, the cone and you hear coherence. Um, wow. And, and it, it's it's not as um, pristine pristine <laughs> as, as as advertised yet, but it's still new and in development. And I'm what I'm more curious about, as mentioned, you two. I understand why they were the first band to use that to work in that venue because they're one of the few bands, and Willie Williams and their design team are some of the few people who think in that scope. Um, But what I'm more curious about is what it's going to be where where if, say, even though they've broken up Daft Punk, Justice, Craftwork, an artist where they can actually do more pointillistic placing of sound and how that would work uh, would be far more interesting than this. Because with you two, you, you... like it's still a meat and potatoes rock band, right? You still have guitar, bass, drums, and you still have to hear all of that coming at you. Only during Beautiful Day was I really aware of the immersive audio aspects of it, really, mm. where I was able to go like, oh, I'm hearing all of the tracks, all the weird, like the choral bits and all that. And I could pinpoint where that is around the house in a way that I can't for a lot of the other tracks. If that makes any sense at all, no, um, it makes sense to me. I mean, you're talking. I'm the audio nerd, and I'm the other audio nerd in the in the room at the moment. Yeah, um, but 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 to get back to that that qualitative question, right? I mean, you know how how immersive is it in in the sense of situating you? The sound being a big part of that, and maybe "Beautiful Day" is the only track that does it. But with that video wall, with that ginormous, and and I feel bad for everyone who hasn't been. Because you know we're we're talking kind of Greek, like you think you know how big it is, and then you walk inside, and you're like, "Oh no, I was wrong. This is far larger." Even when you're on the outside of it, and you're like, "Oh wow, this is a really big spherical building," and you know, well, it's going to be smaller on the inside just because of your relationship to how far away it is. You're like, "No, no, no, this thing's huge. This yeah. this thing, this thing feels it's it's it breaks the brain to be in the space." 
Yeah, and and again, some songs do it visually better than others, right? So, okay. like like the, the the pinnacle song is, um, like Atomic City and um, uh, where the streets have no name, where you're like in a desert and you're watching a sunrise with this white flag of smoke, and it's this beautiful moment, which is like a five minute long cathartic thing. And you're not staring at Bono at all, and you're just more compelled with watching the sunrise and this and this mo and there's like it feels outdoors, almost like a teleportation effect. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I dig it. I dig it. So so I also hate you, but I dig it. <laughs> <laughs> but like 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 the only reason I went on on Friday was I was, ch- was checking because you could. I understand because you could. No. <laughs> no 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 like ticket prices are like dropping like a stone on that right so as opposed like again cheap by comparison paying 250 dollars as opposed to the 550 and up was entirely sane but but not entirely but more sane than having to pay the 500 dollars. so watch the stub hub watch the seat geek and all that sort of stuff and within 24, 48 hours of show days, the ticket prices just start dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping. One always forgets that there is some small upside to the hideousness of the scalping uh, traditions in America. And that is that the scalpers buy a bunch of tickets that no one actually is going to use. Otherwise, the bands get happy. The scalpers get burned. God bless America. Um, I despise scalpers so much. Uh, I'm going to rest the mic away from everybody real quick uh, to talk about one of my picks uh, for best of the year and kind of touching on a bit of the marketing side. All in this case, this is a ticketed experience. It's also something that I believe is still going on right now. And that is a squid game, the trial. Uh, or the trials, Squid Game, the trials, right? It's trials, not trial. Trial would be where they were judging the people who do the Squid Game and sentencing, sentencing them for crimes against humanity. The trials is people auditioning uh, to be part of this crime against humanity called Squid Game. Um, this is an activation that is uh, currently on some a soundstage at CBS Television uh, City uh, down by The Grove in Los Angeles. Uh, it a lot of the creative team uh, or some members of the creative team have worked on things like uh, Stranger Things, the experience. Uh, this is also the first time Netflix has, um, you know, done this all on their own. Uh, they've previously been working with, and, you know, look, they hired outside talent. Let's let's be clear about that. There's like a couple of firms. But previously they were always co-branded with Fever. And now this one was sold uh, via the Tadum website, which is uh, Netflix's genre thing. That's the business context of it, which is like less interesting than the actual uh, show itself. Uh, it's Squid Game, y'all. Uh, you're playing uh, slightly less – well, slightly less – you're playing non-deadly versions of a few of the games from the show, plus I guess a couple of games that were done in the reality series, which uh, came out a couple of months ago. This is this is really an ad for the reality series in some ways, and also tying tidying us over till uh, Squid Game season two. What's remarkable is that it is the games are fun. 
and they still get some story in there. There are some kind of like what at Meow Wolf they would call creative operatives in that there are people whose job it is to get you through the piece, but they're holding up the tone of the piece. But there are also a few folks who are just performing. Uh, there's no plants that I could tell. There's nothing of that nature going on. Like no, no one gets taken out and like, you know, killed like, or, or, or electrocuted like they did at stranger things experience. Sorry, spoilers. Uh, so nothing, nothing cheesy like that, which, you know, makes you think it's real. Um, but golly gee willikers, the, uh, the actual gameplay is a lot of fun. And, you know, if I had unlimited resources, I'd probably go back once or twice just to see if I could do better at things like, you know, walk across the glass panels and, and don't get caught out or the giant sized version of battleship or just take another run at red light, green light. Uh, although I survived that I didn't come in all that early. I, I came in fourth is what I'm saying. And I want another crack at it. <laughs> um, there's no, there's no medal for fourth place, by that, the way. No medal for fourth place is really annoying. So, um, yeah, I just, I want to, I want another shot at it. Uh, it gets the tone. There's actual, some story beats put into it. You know, my, my expectations for, for some of these branded things are, are, are coming down in part because I know that everyone's trying to cut corners and, you know, rein in costs. I walked into that thing expecting that I would see no characters in world that, they wouldn't be trying to do story. They would just be trying to, you know, walk us through some challenges and just like hurt us, hurt us, hurt us through. And, in, and, and that there'd be nothing thematic going on. And instead I found theme, I found character and I was pleasantly surprised. And all the games are fun. Uh, I don't know if anyone else got a chance to play, uh, but. I have a question. Cause sure. this is, this is the, f- essentially at least the third in a series of Netflix based actifications that are very immersive, stranger things, arcane and squid games. Don't forget Bridgerton and Bridgerton. That's why I said at least three. Um, Have you noticed any progression or changes? Has this been the most squid game been the most enjoyable for you? Have you found it the most I'm using hand quotes immersive? Like I'm curious to hear your thoughts about this. Well, I mean, Arcane, Arcane was done outside of, you know, I'm sure Netflix had maybe a little bit to say, but like Arcane is such a special case because that was Riot Games and Secret Cinema uh, in, in sort of the last hurrah for like the original version of Secret Cinema. Like uh-huh. almost everyone was working for Secret Cinema, you know, when they when they got sold. A lot of those folks, folks ankled. I, I don't quote me on who's there or not, but I, I'm aware that a lot of people who were there aren't part of that team anymore. Um, so that one kind of doesn't count as a Netflix thing. And I haven't been to Bridgerton, but of Stranger Things and this, I would say they're they're a little bit on par. I think also Stranger Things has more character to it in, in a lot of ways, but they just took very different approaches uh, Laura in the chat is saying Bridgerton was fantastic. Laura, you could you could pipe yeah, up. If only she could talk. On yeah, a if only if only it. there was a <laughs> microphone in front of her. <laughs> I was just sort of you know waiting for an opening. Um, no, you're gonna do that all night with me. Jeez, come on. So, 
Uh, no, I continue and then I'll jump in if there's. Yeah. No, I mean, like, I, I, there's a little bit of apples and oranges here. You know, you are more, interesting enough, you have to suspend your disbelief and they work a little harder to make that happen in Stranger Things, right? You have to suspend your disbelief a little less in Squid Game because, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's not a supernatural world and you're being expressly told, you know, these are not deadly games, but we are finding out if you're good to play the deadly games. And then the only real thing there is like, you know, well, you start to go like, well, no one would get away with this. And you look at the world and like, oh, actually, maybe they would get away with this. So uh, maybe maybe holding a, a big trials for, you know, this like, come join our thing where you might die or get rich. Like, we'll just, you know, in a couple of years, be how, how we're handling universal basic income. But um, that's uh, <laughs> that's our dark future. Uh, but uh, it doesn't ask you to fall too into the world, but you are playing the games, and that's sort of where that's where both the ludo narrative dissonance and the resonance is coming from. Because mm-hmm. in the moment of playing the game, you really feel like you're in Squid Game, even though you are not. Whereas in Stranger Things, you know there was a lot of things telling you this is theatrical. Uh, but you, you, you stood up like, you know, in, in the stranger things activation, like you, you, you put your hand sign up and like you, you do a psychic powers thing. You're playing make-believe fully here. You're playing a game. You're not having to play make-believe. You're just playing marbles and kicking ass at it. Um, or at least I was Laura. I think I'll just chime in to say, I think there's a nice bridge, uh, with Bridgerton pun intended, um, where you are, I mean, just to touch for a second on production quality and cost cutting, I did the Stranger Things drive-through experience and then the Stranger Things full activation and Bridgerton. And amongst all of those, I have not yet done Squid Games, and amongst all of those, it was very, very high production quality. Um, With Bridgerton, you were sort of in between this space of playing make-believe, but then also very much immersed in the activity that the show is built around. So there was a um, sort of, you know, in terms of like waiters, swimmers, and divers, there was this kind of scavenger hunt puzzle aspect if you really wanted to go into it. But there were all these other like in-world photo opportunities and, um, kind of interactions with just dressing up into, Mm -hmm. I mean, it was incredible. I don't dress up for anything. I am not a cosplayer person. And me and my partner, we absolutely dressed up. So that was a a surprising thing that I found that I wanted to tap into. And and honestly, I'm not really a fan of the show. Um, Mm. And, but I found the experience so much more fulfilling than the show is. And then you move into, it was segmented in a, in a really beautiful way. And then there is this whole dance component where you are watching these professional dancers do this beautiful choreography. And then you are invited to participate in a very non-threatening way if you're not uh, a dancer who can learn quick choreography. So you, you felt like you were, especially because so many people dressed up and dressed up so thoroughly you really did feel like, yes, I am in this world in a much more participatory way that is directly tied to the entire aesthetic of the show. All right. 
Well, from the non-threatening to the somewhat threatening, uh, we're going to slide over to Danielle, uh, who is also going to take us around the horn because her best show is also got her best moment. Danielle, take it away. All right. Um, So my best show of the year happened all the way back in March. Uh, But as I said in my recap, it's still incredibly vibrant in my mind. Um, It was called Omega, and that was put on by immersive horror production company called Paralysis Immersive. Uh, And they're newcomers to Colorado. They actually formed in Chicago and were heavily inspired by some Chicago production groups. Um, And so I paid $150 to volunteer for a 45-minute solo immersive horror experience. Um, But it was so much more than just 45 minutes because there was probably about two weeks or so of um, onboarding interaction that happened leading up to the event. Um, and then I did I did pull up um, a little content warning that, to read through from their website. Um, I've been to a lot of haunted houses and, and horror theater, um, but but nothing on this level because the, the you have to fill out an application and get an invitation to to get the, the privilege to buy a ticket. Um, and they re-emphasize many points throughout the experience of purchasing the ticket all the way up to when you step into the event. They, they're they very thorough in setting expectations and, and being very careful um, with, with the care and safety of their participants. But the website says, be prepared to encounter some or all of the following. Physical aggression, restraints, electricity, consumption of food, water and other fluids, nudity, sexual themes, breath restriction, extreme temperature changes, fog, needles, strobe lights, complete darkness, loud audio, strong language, and triggering thematic content, most of which on this list I did encounter during my experience. (laughs) I can just I, I pause because if I don't I'll just I'll go on and on forever um, so so what was because this is also your moment right like yeah. what I, I know this was one that you were like you know looking forward to and, and I think a lot of that that build up right and like with the extreme haunts in particular there's often this like preamble bit that it gets people going i think kevin can talk to the bit about even though it wasn't an extreme haunt the way you know, the, the build-up for tension experience right like the, the, that long build-up was you know a, a key part of the show and the difference between those who were deeply invested in the alternate reality game portion of it and went and saw the show and the people who just went and saw the show it was night and day Right. Um, and, and that's part of this. That's some of the secret sauce that can happen. Right. I mean, I think we actually talk about this for a moment about Star Cruiser uh, in the earlier segment and just talking about, you know, if you just show people what you're doing. Right. You know, it's it's not the same if you're bought into the fiction. But w- with with that in mind, that was also an opportunity if Kevin wanted to, to weigh in on the ARG. Um, the. The, the the what was the moment kind of brought you in what was what was the the, the peak for you where you were like okay no i'm 
this is ultimate for me. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you a little more um, detail and, and context on what exactly it was as well, which I didn't know when I signed up that everything online was was very vague. And it wasn't until I started getting, first it was a, a piece of mail um, that arrived in my mailbox, and then I was instructed to send a text message, and then I made an appointment to conduct, uh, a, to get on the phone and conduct a ritual with some person who I didn't know who they were or what, what we were conducting a ritual about. Um, Kevin, and, does any of this sound familiar in terms no, of? I've, I've never heard any of this stuff or done any of these things. <laughs> no, yeah, it sounds a lot like a lot of the ARGs from like 2017, 2018 in uh, LA. Did did they involve uh, the letter that I was sent? Had a, a lancet needle um, that actually had me poke my finger and draw no. a drop of blood. Um, that I used in, uh, you know, the the quote unquote, I'm using air quotes, uh, r- the ritual that I conducted over the phone. And so um, my first moment of just like, wow, this is incredible was when I, that was, I, I was very confused at the end of that phone call, but then I received um, an email less than a week later and it was um, someone who had, found out about this ritual that I had conducted. Um, they had actually found and and um, ex- exterminated the person who I was talking to on the phone who I conducted the ritual with. And they uh, were, were essentially summonsing me to my, what it was called mandatory home rehabilitation. And so that was the moment when I, I got an idea, a little idea of what I was signed up to, to do. Um, but that was also such a cool moment for me because I had actually conducted this ritual. I had done this thing that had then implicated me. And that was the reason why I was going to this home rehabilitation. But they didn't really tell me much more. And so I had just enough direction to let my mind start to, to run wild with possibility. I essentially came to learn that I was being invited into the home of a very religious couple. And it was essentially a um, uh, religious conversion therapy um, to, you know, oversimplify what, what was happening. Um, and so I, the, the next moment that was really cool uh, was when, well, let me back up. I parked, I was instructed to drive to Longmont, which is an hour North of Colorado. Uh, I was given a, an address, and then I walked to it at my appointment time, a phone number to text. My uh, in- sanctity enforcer officer replied with a location that I then walked to a few minutes away. Um, they sent me a picture of the house, instructions on how to enter through the back, the side door into the backyard. And that's where I met my my officer who, at this point, I've seen the I know what's in the waiver because it's been presented to me four or five, six times over the course of all of this onboarding and emails and, and things like that. But I sign it. Um, they're kind of ridiculing me for my my bad life choices as a, as a sinner um, and how fortunate I am to be taken in by this couple. Um, then they lead me around the back of the house onto the deck, take my shoes off. And then they kind of opened the door. And this was the next moment. This is the moment when it, where it got really real. It's completely dark inside. It's dark outside. There's a little bit of moonlight, just barely lighting up the, the room that I'm told to walk into. And it's just dark in there. And I can't see anything. I don't know what it looks like. 
Um, so I just like very slowly walk in and a figure kind of emerges out of the shadows, has like antlers, um, just some dark being. And it slowly approached me, embraced me. And then there was this kind of just like heavy, just this like really heavy, breathy kind of breathing. Um, but oddly enough, it wasn't that character wasn't um, wasn't making me scared. They they didn't seem menacing. Um, they seemed almost you know the the warm embrace. I was like, I have no idea what's happening, but I'm I'm not totally scared, but I also don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I'd never done an experience like that. Um, and then the lights snapped on, and I met the husband and wife, and that the show progressed from there and that being was actually with us throughout most of the show. Oh, it was. I was wondering if like, did like, Oh, they disappeared. No, there's something just hanging around the room. Yeah. Could, and it, it's could, could only you see it? Did the other, did the actors act like they could see it? They could not. So it was oh, that's just, fun. It, that's a fun it was bit. me yeah. and this being who I, you know, I think so much of this is open to interpretation. It's very open ended and you can make what you want of it. But my interpretation was, that this being kind of represented like the darkness, a, a path of a, a life of darkness, perhaps of sin depends on who you ask and what, you know, is sinful to you. Um, but it followed me throughout the entire experience. And the only other actors in the production were the husband and wife, and they did not see, or they didn't, they didn't, but sometimes they did. That's, that's, being. that's such a fun, that's such a fun bit because I think one of the, one of the more, overlooked techniques uh, to creating surreality or creating a sense of heightened reality and in immersive is, is the, you know, the imaginary friend thing, right? Like Mm -hmm. only you can see and, Mm -hmm. and actors like purposely ignoring another actor in a space actually has an incredible amount of power um, to, to, to sort of play, play around with. So like, no, no wonder you fell so deeply in love with this thing. There's just some some really strong foundational work being done here. Yes. Um, I'm going to skip us forward a, a bit. I know we've, we we can only touch on things for so long. Uh, going to knock it back to Martine real quick for his moment, uh, which involves a, a major Broadway show. Yeah, um, here lies love on Broadway. Uh, that's David Byrne and Fatboy Slim's. A disco musical about Imelda Marcos, uh, directed by Alex Timbers, um, first came to was first in New York at the Public back in uh, 2012, uh, which of course I saw that production twice, and I had to see it again this time, mostly because I'm Filipino American. It's for me effectively the story of why I was born in America. Uh, my parents fleeing the Marcos regime um, back in 1970. But it was a disco musical with a, out of the public, just an open dance floor. You had like a, an open dance floor seating area. And I think it was like 20 seat, twenty actual seats in the gallery above looking down on the audience. Uh, for the Broadway production at the Broadway Theater, they maintained all that on the floor of the of the auditorium, but then used the entire balcony for a seating area, and um, and yeah, and and they just scaled up 
from uh, the, the the downtown production. And this is the now fourth iteration of it because it played twice at the public in 2012, played in London at the National a couple of years after that, and then they did another run at a theater in Seattle where they're trying to make it into a proscenium theater. Uh, so, so yeah, that, that was a thing. And it's interesting because, and in my talk, in my write-up about the moment, I compare it to another immersive theater piece, uh, immersive musical, which was a Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. I actually saw both of them the exact same day. I saw Here Lies Love at 5 and Great Comet at 8 uh, in one day because I'm insane. And they were both fascinating to see how um, immersive theater, because this is right around the time Sleep No More came out, because that came out in 2011, and it was taking hold and becoming interesting. And I was fascinated by this whole immersive theater scene, and now to see it finally come up to Broadway at a moment when we're now talking about even though I feel that the state of immersive theater is amazing at the time, immersive theater is by metrics with sleep no more closing and here lies love only lasting three months and great comet lasting only six months. Um, there's a, there is fear that immersive is going to have a bit of a waiting moment, but I feel that it's so uh, I'm excited about where we are and the fact that these works are finally making it to the masses and with the sphere and with everything else, uh, I, I'm so excited about where we're at. I think we're going to get into a bit about, you know, the, the strange moment we find ourselves in. But I, too, find, am excited about where we're at, which feels a little weird. But I think it's also a matter of being able to kind of look around the corner and see see how much work has been had been laid down so far uh patrick uh your moment uh let's 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 hop in hop into that yeah absolutely um so my moment comes from lonely hearts the game this is from local mainstay company birch house uh, immersive and they have for years done a valentine's day show like clockwork uh minus kind of the um, no, with the pandemic, because it was in February, the pandemic started in March. So they've done it every year, and it typically has been a on-rails one-on-one interaction. You essentially get like anywhere from three to six one-on-one interactions, and it's typically stories about love and romance and the modern perspective on both. And during the pandemic, they naturally pivoted like so many other companies to – doing remote work. And then at one year they experimented with like mailing letters for the experience and stuff like that. So this year was the first time they were remounting in person. And what was really exciting about this experience is that they com- started to combine a lot of the elements, lessons learned from in-person and remote. And essentially, instead of having a bunch of one-on-ones, you had interactions, there were actors presence. But the main thrust of the evening was sitting around a table with strangers playing a custom made uh, do it yourself board game that they made up and you move. It's essentially like kind of like a clue type board and you move around and you have to get X amount of like uh, tokens to be dubbed the winner. It was all that 
point, the act of whatever you were actually doing was pointless. It was about getting these prompts and having honest, frank conversations with people. And the moment emerged for me that is that I've been a big board game player my entire life. And that was something I lost during the pandemic and with it, my sense of play and this, and I've always been very COVID cautious, uh, even well into when things were dying down at the end of 2022. And so this was my first time, not only really like having a board game night on the books, but being with strangers and sometimes people are the worst, <laughs> Just the general population. We can, maybe this is a safe space to admit that, but it was so wonderful to laugh and engage with these people and just engage with play and just not really focus about like logistics or anything like that. And just be mindful of like the here and now. And I was so appreciative to start off in February uh, this year to have that be one of my experiences to carry me forward, to think about as I went through this year, it's just the importance on simplistic play, which is something I'll kind of talk about a little bit in a later, but it was just a very precious moment to me. And I'm very thankful to have it. Fantastic. Laura. Yeah. I'm going to talk about city by Michael Heiser. So this is a massive land sculpture. Michael Heiser is an American artist and he's a, a fundamental part of uh, the land art movement. And City is, uh, just to give some context, so this is about three hours outside of Las Vegas. And in a um, remote area, Michael Heiser actually has a ranch out there. It's near Alamo, Nevada. And Michael Heiser started working on City in 1970. And then last year, it became open to the public. So this is a, a work of art that is 50 years in the making. And the way to visit it is pretty specific. Only six people can visit it per day. There is a very limited annual window during which you submit an online request to the foundation the Triple Ott Foundation, which is now managing this work of art. And in terms of size and scope, um, if I get this right, it's a, a mile and a half long and half a mile wide, roughly. Mm. So this is a massive sculpture. It's required, I think the uh, dollar amount is somewhere around $20 million to complete in 50 years. And I was able to visit this in June and I think um, I think one of the things that's so interesting about this is is because it's it's rare for us to have what we would consider an immersive experience in nature. So there are structures, there are concrete structures. There's a lot of gravel. Um, there are these kind of walkways, there's concrete curbs, there's these more abstract kind of, um, you know, they speak to, they have an aesthetic that's like Aztec ruin. There's sort of, you know, an echo of that. Um, and so it's a mix of concrete and, and land and it's very stark, but again, it's incredibly large. And to be able to go, into something like this where 
And for anyone that's curious, one of the best images is there's a New York Times article because you're not allowed to take photo or video while you're there as a, as a visitor. So there's not a lot uh, in terms of being able to see it. It's, it's not for the gram. And there's a real freedom in that. I appreciate that like when we went to Arcane, our phones were tucked away in these locked pockets. You know, these kinds of restrictions, again, we've all talked a lot about this tonight in terms of tapping into presence and feeling like you're truly in the moment. And so, but it's so rare that I've been to something that I would I would consider immersive or experiential out in nature. And at one point I sat down alone and there were only five in our group and I wasn't near anybody. And I sat down and certainly we've talked about audio in terms of the sphere. And one thing that we forget is how loud and how rich silence can be. And I felt absolutely transported in a way I mean, words really do fail. It's it's indescribable. And it's not that I think that other kinds of immersive experiences can't capture this, but there is a very specific, very unique, and just especially delicious quality to this kind of immersive experience within nature where I didn't anticipate that sound, I really thought, oh, this is a visual experience. Oh, it was so sound driven. The, the, the crunch of the gravel as I moved and as no one else is around. So I think it's something to consider for not how do we like replicate that per se, but a different consideration of our relationship to sound and audio design or its absence. All right. I'll, I'll note if if someone is interested in that kind of profound experience of silence, but does not get selected for city, uh, the uh, the the Red Rock Desert in uh, just outside of Vegas, uh, th- that area. There's a number of trails, and the the center trail is on like the ancient seabed. You kind of drop below. Uh, to, to the lowest elevation in that area. And while you're on the ancient seabed, uh, aside from planes going into what is now called Harry Reid, but when I was there, it was called McLaren, uh, uh, you know, McCarran, McCarran, McLaren Sakar. <coughs> aside from planes going overhead once in a while, you were just there. It's just you and your tinnitus. And it is, it is an incredibly profound experience to have like that kind of silence uh, for long sustained periods of time. Uh, So I know exactly what you're saying there, Laura. Now we're an hour ish almost into this recording and poor Kevin has had to endure everybody else's thing uh, because he didn't have any shows, but he does because the the show he would have picked uh, is when it opened last year. So instead it's his moment. Uh, Kevin, tell us about your moment and feel free to wax poetic and long because uh, it's from a show that's pretty significant uh, at this particular moment in time. 
Sure thing. I'll actually cheat, and I'm going to do two moments as, as part of the show. So uh, my <laughs> moments are both from Punch Trunks, The Burnt City. I closed in London earlier this year. It was in Punch Trunks masks, kind of looping style across these two huge warehouses in London, um, telling a story of the Greek and Trojan War, the end of the Greek and Trojan War, while well, also integrating like the gods, including Hades, Persephone, Artemis, um, and people like that. So the first one I'm going to talk about is actually a one-on-five, which is a twist on Punch Drunk's kind of one-on-one, which they made famous in Sleep No More. So this one actually, uh, spoilers for a show that is now closed. And actually, I'm going to back up two seconds, too. So Persephone and Hades are actually two characters that do not loop throughout the show. They have one plot line that carries through all the loops, and they are kind of aware of them, which becomes important as Persephone is trying to figure out who she is throughout the show. So late in the show, she pulls in five audience members to this sequence where you hear a recording from Hades, and then she takes you on this pretty extensive journey back through the start of the show, which is a museum exhibit that like introduces you to the concept of the Trojan Warriors you're entering in. And then it's like, you just keep going, you're following through these halls, you're running after her, you're chasing her until you fa- like all end up in this like sandy area. And then she like picks up a piece of chalk and she starts writing something on the wall and she eventually picks up a light and she realizes she's written this hundreds of times. So she's has a longer loop as it turns out. And it's kind of built into the structure of the show that as it continues, she can, goes through this and remembers who she is every time she goes through this. So um, she gives a speech about who she is and then she kind of dumps you out into the rest of the show where it finishes up. So this was a moment just because it, it felt like such a twist on the normal formula of the one-on-one where you're with these audience members would actually, it makes it a less intimate moment, but a more engaging one because you're kind of on this journey with these audience members and this character all throughout like the back of the show. Um, so I thought that was really impactful and really stood out just in terms of like, holy shit, like this is cool. Like this is unique. It's, it feels interesting and it's actually glad you're experiencing it with more people rather than a one-on-one, um, because of kind of the, how much it matters to the actual story of the show. And then my second one, um, is actually the finale of the show. So there's actually two finales. One takes place on the Troy side and one takes place on the Greece side. The um, Greece side is like full of it's like these huge open spaces, which is I think Punisher kind of has that in like the main room of the the McKittrick, where it's like the they loop into the um, feast every time they go through it, and it's a pretty big scale. Uh, it is absolutely dwarf dwarfed by what happens in the Greece side, and it features this huge staircase. Um. And at the end of the show, it starts slowly. They kind of, um, people walk by and they walk up. And then all of a sudden, all the cast, except for Hades and Persephone, who are watching from the other side, kind of tumbles down the staircase in very slow motion. And then they do this thing in the center where they slowly start moving in a circle. And it speeds up. It speeds up. Hades throughout the show has talked about, like, these records he actually, uh, he pulls the needle at one point and the, everybody in the show stops. So it's like this the theme of looping is really built into this show fundamentally. Hmm. And so they continue in the circle and it speeds up and speeds up and then they collapse. Hayes and Stephanie applaud and the show is over. So that one also felt like a twist because it felt more like it, the, the finale of sleep no more is very singular. It's about Macbeth's journey through this. And this is much more about 
all of the stories you've seen unfold throughout the city over three hours leads up to this moment um, between Hades, Persephone, and the rest of the cast. They kind of watch them, what they've kind of damned them into these loops over and over again as the cities fall. I'm, I'm so glad you, you shared that. And like, I'm one of those people who didn't get a chance to see this production who, you know, hopes that maybe one day, you know, they'll, they'll remount it just, just to I, I g- so. g- give the world. Um, it's not, it's not impossible that it could happen, but it also kind of clarifies to me why punch Trunk is like, this is our last of our masked shows. Cause it feels like they, they took this to a metafictional level, right? They, mm-hmm. they took it to a point where they're, they're commenting on their own structure and they're, they're folding their own structure into the story itself. That metafictional you know, call sort of also becomes like a overcalling oh, the shot on this being the last of this form, mm-hmm. right? Like puts a, puts a button on it. Yeah. And it feels like even though it is metafictional, it feels like a button. It also feels like it, it fully understands like what they're doing in these shows and to really make it more impactful by like some of these characters are on like a three hour loop where it's like they're running the whole story and then it starts again when the show runs again, some are on these shorter ones. But it just felt like it's those two moments, I think, really, I think, crystallize how well it works in terms of the multiple stories and the way they're telling these stories inside the Burnt City, which I feel like they're both my moment. I would have made like the show my moment because it it is really impactful. There's a lot of these like even like tiny things um, throughout in terms of like really visually impactful things that look really cool. I couldn't have done on a scale outside of this show um, because of how large the space is and kind of I think the cachet that punch drunk has at this point so going from the metafictional uh, end of punch drunk's masked shows to uh the moment in time that was 2023 uh the other squad didn't get to do this uh but i'm tossing it out to all of you since we've got this nice cross section from across the country uh and also because this is going to be the end of the show uh and the last time we all talk on air about this stuff for this year where does where does everyone sort of feel like the moment we're in is and folks have touched on this martin touched on that a little bit laura i know you've probably got some 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 takes in here and and i think uh kevin you know one of the things you noted was that you know you didn't have any you didn't have a bet any best ofs because you you didn't feel like there was anything strong enough in la this year to to warrant putting on on, on a list. I don't know if I just spoiled that out for you, for everybody, but yeah. So, I mean, that's what happened. I, I saw a few things throughout LA and, and part of it may have been just me. I wasn't seeing enough. Um, but of the stuff I did see, it didn't really, nothing really rose to be like, that was like a show of 2023 that like really defined it in a way for me. And I think Laura does think differently. So I'm interesting, interested to hear what she has to say on that point. Yeah, Laura, get at him. Get him. Yeah, so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna push back so hard on this. I I mean, love you, Kevin. But yeah, I'm gonna push back really hard. I mean, to be fair, I've been really trying to ramp up how much I'm seeing. So I did something like I think 110, 115 experiences this year. Now that's the no, that's full- like two a week. It's it's a lot now, and some of that, to be fair, was I, I mean, I had a chance to like travel to places I haven't been traveling much in the past couple of years. So, you know, especially when you're in 
a new location and you can pack things in, you're really excited to do that. But of that, I think, yeah, 110, 115, I think roughly like 70 of those were in Los Angeles. I mean, a huge percentage. And I do think that, I mean, one of the things that I'm so interested in is where are we seeing these hybrid models? Where are we seeing the blurring between different sectors of the industry? I think that some of the most unique and interesting work, I mean, I'll just even cite one that uh, most of us have been to or definitely have talked about, which is The Nest in LA. And I think it's by Scout Expedition Co. And it's, I think, a fantastic example of a hybrid uh, model in terms of where they're pulling different design tenants and how they wove it together. So I'm really interested in where is their great experiential marketing, uh, where is their great installation art that is unique in its own right, but also might be an indicator of where we're going to go with experiential broadly. So I'm going to a lot of these gallery shows in addition to big museums, smaller independent work, I'm really trying to do as much as I can. So that's the big caveat to pushing back on Kevin specifically. Um, in terms of the state of the field, we have talked about these different closures, Galactic Star Cruiser, Burnt City, Sleep No More. What do these mean? These are titans of the industry. What does this mean for us? And, and a lot of people having some legitimate concern. And that's another reason why I speak about things like on the wings of Hermes. Let's look to who is not only funneling some serious cash into these productions, but clearly cares deeply. And not just because On the Wings of Hermes was so beautifully executed, but they have a long history. They have their own experiential legacy, if you will. They've done productions 2017, 2018. There were three last year. They travel globally. So I'm really interested to see what is going to come out of experiential marketing? Um, I think well, that, yeah, go ahead. Patrick, well, yeah. Laura, what, how much of that do you think is like, because the traditional ways of alerting people to a product product being very generally used in this sentence sure. uh, is in, influencing this kind of stuff. Cause I think about like, you know, I I'm sure all of us in some way or another and listeners out there, are cutting certain social media platforms. They're cutting cords, so they're they're paying for ad list type platforms and things like that. So, how much of this do you think is like related to the creativity of trying to get your noise, your product above everyone else's into a consumer quote unquote like thoughts? Like, I'm curious well, to hear your thought on a- that. Yeah, I think it's a great question. And and one of the things that I'm so interested in are these brands that are not actually selling a product. And and so Louis Vuitton has had two uh, big, I mean, these are kind of museum level exhibitions. They had one called X in 2019. And uh, last year, 200 trunks. Uh, Vouve Clicquot had an exhibition last year uh, called Solaire Culture. And there are gift shops. I mean, there, there is an opportunity with the exception of Hermes. The other three, you actually could buy product there. But like I said, these are all free and open to the public. I did uh, have to register. I've never received a single product marketing 
promotional email from any of them. So I think this, the larger question that's more interesting and applicable to us is, what does this mean about experiential? Like, what are the fundamental promises of experiential beyond just the transactional? I mean, yeah, we're in late stage capitalism, sure. Like, but but beyond those transactional needs and uh and, and for some people, you know, deep values, but what, what then on the flip side, what is the real promise of experiential that people, including consumer brands, even luxury brands, what is it that they really care about? That's a, that's a key question, not just for the brands, but I think for everyone who's looking at this. And I think there is this Gordian knot here, right? Because there's a bunch of stuff entangled in this question. First and foremost, when it comes to experiential and immersive, like why is why do people use the word immersive to sell so many things, particularly to sell like experiences and 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 products often that aren't remotely immersive in the sense that we use immersive when we're all talking amongst ourselves. One thing that's been really useful for me when talking to both my students at CalArts and to like people from performing arts centers is to actually roll back and talk about, you know, the Miriam Webster definition of immersive, which basically means something that's really, really, really engaging, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're surrounded by it, you're, you get lost in it. And that qualitative layman's part of immersive or which is also part of the promise of experiential when we like, well, we're not going to use the word immersive. We're going to say call ourselves experiential instead. What people are chasing there is something that is rich in terms of its its qualities, not necessarily in terms of, you know, how much money has been pumped into it, but that has a lot of richness. You feel like you're, you're engaging with something that has a lot of value, you know, not necessarily monetary, but you're able to connect and that that connection is going to lead you into a deeper and deeper relationship with whatever values you're trying to establish, whether that is a story you're trying to tell, a fictional world you're trying to make people fall in love with, or a brand. And the thing I keep on coming back to in this question of Louis Vuitton and Hermes and, and, or like Celine or any of these, any of these brands that have said like, we're doing the Celine experience. And I didn't know what Celine was. I thought they were like doing some Celine Dion. I was like, oh, it's clothing line. Um, but the posters were everywhere in Los Angeles for a minute there. To Patrick's point, there's this like, well, how else are we going to sell stuff to folks because everyone's disconnected from normal advertising? But then there's also this fundamental thing of, you know, this stuff when it works has this deep power of connecting someone, of attaching someone to what this stuff is, whatever it is you might be shilling, whatever whatever you might be trying to sell. And the only increasingly the only people who have the agency to marshal the resources to make a thing that can work at that level are folks who already have tons and tons and tons of cash. And those are luxury brands and, you know, international megacorps. Um, but, but I don't think, you know, this, this, this stuff isn't just the purview of those entities, but it's the thing that most people are going to interact with the first time they interact with any of this stuff. Martine's got something. Yeah. Like, like, it reminds me of a piece I wrote for No Pro, I want to say like five years ago, when I did a thing about immersive art activations at Coachella, right? Like it's a place where you have 
all of this stuff on the scale where you have where like again your random tourists could experience it at 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 a scale which which will be memorable um but yeah but i'll also push back cuz like we talk about the commerce of of this so much but i'm also just so excited about other things going on in the rest of the performing arts world wow every year at, at la jolla playhouse is always so exciting stuff going on at art park up in buffalo and so many places so like while the discussion about commerce needs to be oh and the other thing which i have to remind you because i think you're writing the review for this laura uh, uh luna luna right like the, there are other things happening right now which are escaping from the sort of commercial vein of all this which is also so exciting so that's just where where, where i'm at right now with all this well and let's toss it to laura real quick i was typing but let's get your action let's get your luna luna response on air there real quick yeah so luna luna was the other thing i was going to mention i mean i will say just a quick um hop back noah to your point i think you can say like it's, again, I think it's really easy to say like, oh, you know, Hermes, I mean, they have all these resources or any of these luxury brands, they have so much cash. They also do not need to do this. So I think I think the other way mm-hmm. is to invert it and to say Hermes does not need to do this. That was not a cheap production. It was in Paris, Tokyo, Singapore and Los Angeles, I think at a bare minimum. So you're looking at something that like Hermes is this, again, incredibly like storied luxury brand. They don't have to do experiential in order they are completely aspirational for so many people. And I mean just for the record, I don't own any Hermes. I probably never will. And I'm not it's not aspirational right. for me. I make no judgment for other people, but the point being it's easy to say I mean we talk a lot about intentionality and execution. They completely delivered. So I think let's Let's also have a moment to appreciate when experiential is is so extraordinarily well done. And as far as Luna Luna, it's a fantastic opportunity for us to reframe. Uh, I mean, this is specifically between the fine art world and experiential. The experience itself, I think, is great and I think is worth people to to go see. It's not um I'll just say that I have reservations about some of the presentation that did not land for me. That being said, the fact that you have the world's first and thus far only art amusement park, you have Jean-Michel Basquiat, uh, his Ferris wheel, you have a carousel by Keith Haring, you have this kind of mirrored dome by Salvador Dali. I mean, these are blue chip artists and they made things that weren't precious. And it was, I mean, back to like Patrick's point, my point earlier, it was all about play. It was all about a celebration of imagination and creativity. And it wasn't this sterilized commodity. And I think there's, but now it's actually kind of being presented as such, because now it's a historical artifact. It's a bit like a playground under glass. And that's my issue with the presentation of it. Not that I expect that they should have made it so that we could go on the rides, but I have some ideas about how it could have been a little bit more celebratory that 
would uh, embody the original vision a bit more in its presentation. But the real opportunity here is for us to then, again, look at where can we not be so siloed amongst these different sectors? And also, where can we step back from needing to define and debate the value of these different sectors or even the definition? What is art? How is art different from entertainment? How is entertainment used as sometimes like a derogatory term almost? Art with a lowercase a versus art with a capital A. So I really think we spend so much time. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, no, because I couldn't agree more because like we didn't talk about any remote work. And as the remote experience editor, there was so much great work that happened. Uh, there was like I, I could I could spend just an hour myself just pontificating about this. And there's been such great pioneers, I think, in the space in regards to you know, as a lot of people have returned to in-person, we've gotten less of just people like, okay, well, we have an idea. Let's try to make it work on Zoom. We now have actual artists and companies intentionally designing work in the space. And I think that has opened up some really fantastic avenues, um, especially with um, like a lot of like box experiences. I'm thinking of Threads of Fate with just I, a very- I just got in the mail today very... and I'm so excited. Oh, oh, there you go. We missed it by a week. You could have talked about it. But like, the, like the, there's, there's, a, there's becoming a simplicity in regards to the intentionality of what what form am I taking? What product? And I, I was using product very generally, like product as in an actual tangible thing you can go to the store and uh, get versus my artistic experience. Yeah. And so I think that's the been the beauty of this year. And what I remain very hopeful is that we're going to think really more about like, like it, it's less, I think it's less about the narrative or the spectacle or where you are and things like that. It's about having that simple moment. It's about going and hugging uh, uh, an antlered figure in the woods under no circumstance would I ever do that. Uh, <laughs> it's about going to the dome and staring up and like having the, like the spotlight hit you. It's like these, it's these intense focuses of just simply acknowledging you are here and you're being asked to do or think about a very simple thing in a profound way. So, I, so something, something I want to touch on here, cause you know, Patrick, I like that you just created this, you know, like you showed the breadth of this stuff. Cause on the one hand we have like what Danielle experienced at Omega, which is, you know, this is a small theater company that's, uh -huh. you know, kind of like homegrown, they've put their resources in, in a very smart way. There's a conversation that happens in the first part of this episode where, you know, there's, there's pointing out uh, with the order of the golden scribe that where they put their production resources was very effective. They couldn't do everything. So they focused on a couple of things and executed on that really well. I think on, on the full other side of that, there does become, you know, the the star cruisers and like the Broadway shows that closed up at, you know, versus like, you know, the brand activation stuff for Hermes. You have people at the farther end at the larger budget kind of wondering whether or not they can commit to this. And unfortunately, in our in our society, like, you know, it, it, something has a higher price tag on it is read instantly as being more valuable, even though as people, we know some of the most profound work is going to happen in stuff that has 
relatively no budget because it's so human scale and it's person to person. And where I sit as I watch these conversations happen amongst students, amongst brand people, amongst performing arts center folks about trying to figure out, is this stuff for me? My answer is always, yes, it's for anyone who wants to make it, right? It's for anyone who who, who feels interested in living in that world for a little bit if if it's on on the on on the participant side. And what what I do worry about is that at the level of your your institutional figures, your performing arts centers, your marketing agencies, your large brands, you know, your, your entertainment companies, the question of whether or not there's enough ROI on this, they're going to, they look at it through a, a, a lens that doesn't necessarily put the same amount of value on that deep impact um, that we do. And it, we may find ourselves in a world where the only people who can afford to do the, the large budget stuff are going to be, you know, and and pay people what they're worth to make it. The number of projects that are, you know, living wage for folks may increasingly, because of this the state of the world we're in, lay on the luxury side alone or lay on the side of these very, very large corporations. And those large corporations are going to be very interested in throughput, maybe more than anything else. Throughput, brand impressions, and and not necessarily understand the argument of hey some of this material is michelin star dining some of this material is going to have a higher ticket price because you have a better experience and a lot of those people would not bat an eyelash about what they're going to throw down at spago or nobu or or crossroads or you know mother wolf or whatever whatever the big things are right now, like whatever the big restaurant is, right? Major Domo, not, not, not bad an eyelash, right? Uh, but you tell them, oh, these are going to be $200 for this immersive theater show. They're like, whoa, buddy, you're, you're crazy. I need that money for my bottle service, you know? Um, and, and that for me is, is where I get a, a little, a little frustrated in terms of who gets to do this stuff, both in terms of audience and in terms of makers? Yeah, like one thing which I'm going to finish on, because it's the other thing which I'm looking forward to the most next year, is how, while not here stateside, you're going to have a massive public event, which the people can pay 2,000 euro for or experience in the public. Uh, or just experienced by walking the streets of Paris. And I'm talking about the Paris Olympic opening ceremonies, which is going to be this giant street parade down the boat parade down the Seine. It's going to be an event where, again, massive corporate infrastructure, massive everything that we're talking about. But at the same time, it's going to be a massive public open air street festival. And I'm curious if something like that is going to then sparks in other cities to create spectacles on that scale. I mean, we've got LA 2028 coming, but like that's, that's the, the CEO just ankled today for the local LA 2028 Olympics. And it feels more and more like we're just going to be saddled with this massive security event that, that has no 
pop cultural upside but, as opposed to the 1984 Olympics, which had this massive cultural upside in Los Angeles. But I, I, I think there's something to be said about actually the reverse. And I, I was having a conversation with um, Spencer Williams of Tales by Candlelight when um, he was in town uh, recently for the holidays. Uh, and I, 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 it's this is my opinion in talking like it's the thought that emerged was that I think we just need to be it's it's less about these tentpole things. I think it's more about just doing more of totally fine things. And I think that's like almost counterintuitive to say and stick with me for a second because I think when people think you know like fine like oh, you know I, I think we've lost our way in regards to art at, and culture at large when we go to the movies or turn on the TV and stuff is like it has to be a thing. It has to like be a defining moment of my life. And it's going to be part of every conversation I have for the next three months when um, there's so often so much more entertainment or, or value to be had by just simply enjoying a thing for what it is and coming out of that. And I think very unfortunately tie back to know what you were saying, like that's when the money just money complicates everything in that sense. And I, and I, I think, but I think that's important is that I think it's a really unsolvable problem, right? How do we make more art like just happen is a whole thing. But I just think that sometimes here at the end of the year, we're, you know, talking about some really wonderful, great things. But I think the takeaway of what these conversations should be is that we have anything to talk about. We have some things. It's not that necessarily like these are like, the best. These are just like really wonderful pinnacles. This is part of a great plethora of options and things to experience, whether you're in LA, Denver, Chicago, New York, or thanks to the many ways you can engage with things online via telephones and VR. And I think we need to start counting our blessings maybe. I, I don't know, but I, I've been noodling this idea for a while now. This is the first I've articulated. So I apologize to literally everyone. <laughs> But I, I think there's something to say, just be doing more of totally good, fine work. That's a nice place to end it. We can, we'll, we, we inevitably can go on and on again. And, I, and we didn't get Danielle in this section, and I, and I want to, but, but it's such a fine sentiment that I'm just going to call it right there. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk we'll talk offline in a moment here uh but i just want to thank everybody for sticking around for for this part of it and for uh riding along on this year it has been an interesting year and uh i i am pretty upbeat uh going forward because even though there are these you know large scale structural problems in the arts and entertainment uh there has been a lot of great work done in the past couple of years. And the fact that we're still standing at all after, you know, the, the changes wrought upon us by the, by the pandemic as a whole. And the fact that every part of the arts entertainment, not just immersive is facing this, these problems and people keep on looking to this work as a way to get audiences excited again, whether you are, a performing arts center or your Hermes, right? Or you're a small, you know, team of horror makers uh, hanging out in the woods behind Danielle's house right now. Uh, oh wait, you're not home right now. Well, they missed, they messed up, didn't they? Um, <laughs> no matter where you are, uh, there's, there's, there's interesting stuff going on and there's people who are passionate about it. So thank you all for, uh, for the 2023 best ofs.
And there you have it. There are the 2023 No Presidium best ofs. Well, there are some of them. Remember, the whole lists are up on the site. Indeed, uh, the show page for this particular episode is the best shows and experiences. Uh, you know, probably say best shows and experiences with podcast. Don't know because I haven't made it yet. Uh, <laughs> gonna do that right now. Just running and gunning with this. Um, thank you all. Thank you all for uh, being with us uh, for this year. Uh, I'll have more thank yous uh, at the end of of next uh, episode. But uh, thanks for being one of the constants in my life. Because um, sometimes life just starts throwing you curveballs. But every week I get to do this and I get to do this because of you. And thank you to Ed and Nicholas and Blake and Katrina and Laura and Patrick and Martine and Kevin and Danielle for being on the show. Thanks to everyone who works on the site for contributing, uh, those who did, those who didn't. Uh, hey, next year, next year. Uh, and those who contributed and couldn't be on the show this week, um, including Shelly Snyder uh, from our London office, because... Uh, the times like don't sync up properly for that. Um, yeah, more next week. This has been a very long episode. We've almost hit three hours, uh, and I'm not going to just keep talking so that we can hit three hours. So bye. Uh, the associate producer for this podcast is Parker Sella. Music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society and Solar the Podcast. Special thanks to Sean O'Loughlin for voicing our intro. The No Pro Podcast is written, edited, hosted, produced, and mixed by yours truly. I'm Noah Nelson. And until next time, I'll see you at the show. Mm -hmm.